Direction mairie d'ici, prochain train dans une minute, le suivant dans trois minutes. Welcome back to the World Radio Paris podcast, where we bring you the best shows that we've aired on our radio station. Hello, welcome to Turning Points on World Radio Paris. I'm your host, Patricia Colleen, and I'm delighted to chat today with Maria Doyle. Maria is an Irish singer, writer and inspirational speaker. Maria has broken the mould in so many ways and in her own words has always refused to live down to other people's expectations. She has lived in France for over 30 years and with her husband Emmanuel has seven wonderful children. Maria's life has been a series of spectacular turning points. She was born in a Madeleine laundry, but fortunately her grandmother Isabel rescued baby Maria and her mother Eileen, and Maria's home life in Dundalk, Ireland was a modest and happy one. Maria discovered her vocation at five when she won her first singing competition and decided she was going to be a star. However, Maria was struck blind at nine and on the same day discovered her daddy was not her real father. She was sent to a school for the blind but ran away, making her own way home. She left school at 13 to embark on her singing career with a tour of the US. At 19, she represented Ireland in the Eurovision. She met her husband, Emmanuel, in Ireland, and at 27 and pregnant, they moved back to France. And Maria dedicated her life to her family. But then she returned to the public eye when, after a TED Talk, her life story, One Can Only Truly See With a Heart, was published by Plon. She made her stage comeback and was a semi-finalist in The Voice France in 2020. She sang in the Pantheon in 2022 for the 70th anniversary of the Pantonization of Louis Braille and since then has been an ambassador for Voir Ensemble, See Together in English, a French association for the blind. Last year, she was a key speaker at the French Ministry of Culture to prepare including the learning and use of Braille in the intangible cultural heritage of humanity at UNESCO. This January, she was awarded an Irish Presidential Distinguished Service Award, the highest award an Irish person living abroad can be granted. Today, we are sitting here in the Irish Embassy in Paris, where Ambassador Burgess and Morris Cotter, the cultural attaché, and many, many Irish people, including women from Manon the Heron group, are waiting to honour Maria at a reception in her honour, where she'll sing and be accompanied by her son, Emmanuel, on piano. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much, Patricia, but you've said it all. I think I can leave now. Oh, <laughs> oh no, oh no, that's just an introduction. It doesn't even sound like me. I can't believe you've, I've done all that, listening to you saying all that. I can't even believe I've done it all. You've done it all and you got the medal. Three, I have it. <laughs> three awards, in fact. Maria, let's go back to the very beginning and just tell us briefly about being born in the Madalena Laundry. Well, I found that out actually at the same time as I went blind because Mummy, when she had to tell me the truth about my father, she actually had to tell me the truth then of where it all began in a Madeleine laundry. And actually at the beginning, my name was Stephanie. And so then my name changed when my grandmother found her daughter because she thought her daughter was in England. But as, well, you probably don't know, two priests actually brought Mum from London and locked her up 
up in the Madeleine Laundry. And my granny, Isabel, didn't know she was there. So when she did find out that she was there, she came, rescued us, a great woman, got Mammy out of the Madeleine Laundry. I was four months old, and Mammy started a new life in Dundalk by herself in our mother's house at the time. Well, bravo to your granny and to your mammy. Mm. And in fact, Maria, you escaped from a sort of um, exclusion at that time. You were excluded, people that were sent away like well, that. Well, at the time, they were just discarded, the women at the time. Like, if they had sex out of wedlock, they were considered as prostitutes. So these institutions were for women that had fallen in love and maybe had, like in Mammy's uh, story, she made love just once and got pregnant. And because it was against the religion, she prayed for punishment. Her punishment was the baby to be pregnant, and then she was punished by being locked away in the Madeleine Laundry. Thank God times have changed, Marie. I think oh, the last indeed. Madeleine Laundry shut down in 1996 or Only something, quite recently. Quite recently, but thank God that's all behind us. Mm. Maria, do you remember what you felt like when you won your singing competition at five years old? I'm sure I felt like a star. You know, I was fascinated by the stars before I went blind. And funny enough, the more I would look up at them, the more I felt somebody had a plan for me. And for me, it was to become a star. You know, when you're a child, you look up at the stars. So when I won that wee competition, I was only five, I felt that was it. I was on my way. My goodness, and you are a fantastic star. You're scintillating for all of us here, all the Irish in France and Irish at home as well. Um, Maria, something happened one day when you were nine at school. You noticed something was terribly wrong. Well, it was just back to school time in September. Um, I was all delighted because I had a new uniform and a new school bag and, you know, that lovely smell of school, you know, I loved that. And I was looking up at the blackboard and all of a sudden I just couldn't see what the teacher was writing. And I thought it was weird. All of a sudden everything went like blurry. Everything started to disappear. And I was a fan of Doctor Who at the time. You know Doctor Who in the telephone box? Of course, yeah. Well, I thought it was like maybe I was being part of a show and there was been a trick played on me because everything just disappeared, just like that. And um, indeed, in six weeks, I was blind, just like that. Oh, my goodness. And how did you cope? Well, I think as a child, you cope very well, Patricia. You know, um, I was only nine, so um, I suppose my mind could see, you know, so I started imagining everything. I could still imagine that the sky was blue and that there were stars. I suppose it wasn't nice not being able to see Mammy's face, but I imagined it. And then the more I would try to see myself in the mirror, the more I would try to imagine everything. So I became like this artist, like a... Um, like Picasso, and I started kind of just painting in the world. Painting in your reality. And then at 13, Maria, you embarked on a musical tour of the US with your mother Eileen. Now, how did that come about? It just happened because I was singing after I ran away from the blind school. That was it. I was finished with school. I left school. I was only 13, officially, but really it was like 10. (laughs) But um, I decided to (laughs) sing... (laughs) Singing was my life, and I sang for a group of Americans when I was 13 years of age in a Maytime Festival uh, show in Dundalk, and there was these Americans, and when they heard me and they listened to what uh, what was happening to me, and they said, oh, we're going to save her, we're going to save her eyes, we're going to bring to America, and everything will be fine. Unfortunately, nobody could do anything. There was no cure, there was no nothing. The only thing that could possibly happen was a miracle that I'm still waiting on and hoping someday will happen. And I just went all over America touring, and it was like, as I say in my book, On a Voix avec le Coeur, it was like we went to Dallas. Mum was like Sue Ellen, and it was just, we were living a dream, you know, like uh, for us coming from such a poor area in Dundalk, it was just, um, we went into another world, a complete new world. 
It's like America in the movies. Oh, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, the carpet, yeah, yeah. you sink into a little bit like here in the, embass- in the embassy. You know, my high heels right now are stuck in the carpet. So it was a bit like that where we would have just ply our, a plyboard, um, like no flooring in our, in our house. No fridges, no nothing. So it was just going from one world into another world. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And then, Maria, at 19, you did Ireland Proud. You represented Ireland in the um, Eurovision Song Contest in Sweden, and you brought home sixth prize. What was that like? Well, like, once again, I had to fight for everything that I achieved in Ireland when I came back from America. I was 15. I didn't want anybody to know I was blind, so I used to say that I was just too poor and I didn't want to wear jam jars. And I <laughs> <laughs> glasses. Yeah. And so people just thought I was nearsighted or whatever. I just didn't want anybody to know I was blind because I didn't want pity. I didn't want anybody to say that, oh, she's there because she's blind. So when I achieved the Eurovision, I, I never even spoke about it. The only thing I, I kind of regret, I, I don't have many regrets, but I regret at that time when I was 19 that I didn't speak about the Madeleine Laundries. And perhaps maybe the Madeleine Laundries would have shut down earlier. But because I wasn't educated I thought that what happened to mammy was normal I thought what happened to me was normal I thought that they that was a normal thing to do to women and I never spoke about it it's only when I had children and later on in life I realized this is was it was this it's just desperate you don't do that to women yeah but Maria what you're describing is the state we were all in we were all a bit brainwashed really so that's the way it was and now, actually, I just have to tell you, Maria, the lovely song that you sang at the Eurovision, Wait Until the Weekend Comes, that was written by Brendan Graham. I still hum that when I'm going out the weekend. Aww. That's the sign of a good song, a song yeah, that lasts. It was lovely. And now, Maria, we're going to take a little break to listen to that song, OK? Lovely. Lovely to hear it again.
memory on hearing the embassy dancing like I was back in the disco. It's just a fantastic song. Thank you so much. And I'm sure our listeners really, really enjoyed that. Now, to go back to your story, Maria, in 1992, you left Ireland and arrived in France, newlywed and pregnant. What did that new turning point feel like for you? Well, once again, in a new world, I gave up everything behind, left everybody behind, but we're good at that, the Irish. We're good at emigrating, we're good at leaving home, we're good at moving on. And, but I remember when I stood in Garda Lest with all my belongings around me, I remember looking up to the heavens and I said, Maria, you are going to do exactly what you did in Ireland here in France. Now, it was, I don't know if somebody was to put a bet on me, like, you know, you put a bet on a horse, I probably would have been one million to one. You know, the, the chances yeah, yeah. that I would actually do something here, especially I lived in a, ru- a rural village. I was pregnant. Then I went on and had seven children. But bit by bit, people saw me, saw my children, began to know who I was, what I was able to do, all the different achievements. I received different medals, different awards. That's right, Maria. You won a medal, um, La Médaille de Famille. Yeah. Now, what is that medal? Well, it's just when you have a lot of kids, and but that you rear them well. You know that you just don't get it because you have seven kids. They kind of do. They come and they see what your children are doing, and because they're all musicians, and I educated them both in the French culture and in the Irish culture, and um, they believed that that deserved a medal. So I got the silver medal. I didn't get gold because I didn't have eight kids. Well, <laughs> Maybe you but can... I thought they should have given me gold anyway. Because... They should have given you the gold anyway, Maria. Now, listen, Maria. So you were very occupied with your family, but then in 2017, you gave a TED Talk that I mentioned earlier. And then Plon, a major French publishing company, published your life story. Now, you're, that was a bestseller. Why do you think that book touched people from every walk of life? Well, I suppose because it's true. I suppose because it represents so many of us because it's not just because I'm blind, it's not because I have seven children, it's not because of a Madeleine baby. We all have problems, we all have our own troubles, we all have our own battles to fight. And I think people enjoyed reading me because through my words they could see themselves a little bit and it gave a lot of people strength and helped them to be more resilient, I hope. That's what I wrote the book for and I hope that that's what it's doing even still today. Well, that's the way your personality is. You do give people courage. You just radiate and you pass your own courage onto other people. That's just just how it is. And then after your book was a bestseller and everything, you were subsequently awarded the Stanislas Medal. Now, what about, what's that? Well, these are all these learned people. Now, I was amazed at this. We were in a big room, a bit like the embassy, very plush, very posh. And all of a sudden, all these men, like maybe 50 men, walk down a big, you know, with their suits and their hats, and they all walk down, and they're all these learned people, and they, it's the same, they, they judge my life and my achievements and everything I, I've done. And they decided to reward me with this medal that's as old as Stanislas, I think it's 1756 or something like that. So I thought it was actually quite funny, knowing that I had left school so early, that there was these, all these learned doctors and lawyers and you know, really judges and all this were giving me this medal. What an achievement. It was funny, actually. What an achievement, yeah. And then after all of that, like in your book, you said you wanted to get back on the stage and perform with your children. Then tell us what happened in 2020. Well, that's what's strange. If you get my book, at the very end, it says that, you know, and it's in 2018, where I'd love to get up on stage again and this time not hide my disability and to be proud of, of my handicap and to say it's my handicap that made me who I am today and everything that I've done is because, of, because I'm blind 
and because of, of the courage it gave me to, to knock on doors and to push my way through life and to show that everything was possible. And then, I suppose you could look at that as a little bit of a, not a prophecy, but I did it then. I went on stage two years later with my children and went all the way to the semi-finals of The Voice. It's like you had a vision of what was going to happen. Always. Yeah, always. <laughs> now, Maria, after that, two years later in 2022, you sang a cappella in one of the most famous buildings in France, in Paris, the Pantheon. Tell us about that. Well, that was unbelievable because it, it, it was the Pantheon, but you know the way it is here in France, it's, we're laic. It's, is that what you say? I mean, exactly, okay. exactly. So it was a bit of a risk to sing Ave Maria in this building, but they let me do it. Because I convinced them by saying before it was a, a laic building, before it be, belonged to the government, it was a church. So as I stood there, it was an altar. It looked like it really was an altar. I stood there, and for me, I was singing like as though I was in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And I sang with all my heart a cappella. And I sang for, like for all those Victor Hugo, for all those people that went before me. And I felt I was singing for all those spirits, all those Irish people that went and will come bef- again after me. I was singing for them. Oh, how lovely. That's given me shivers. Now, listen, after that, your performance was so spectacular. You were asked to become ambassador for the France's, I think, most um, important association for the blind that's called Voir Ensemble, See Together. Now, what does your work with them entail? Well, I do quite a lot. My first job is to find... The, the, it's called Messina, the, the people that kind of give money because they need money because it's an association. But mostly my job is to go around schools. I like to be an example for children because at, when I was young, I had no example. I didn't know anybody that was blind and I didn't even know you could go blind. I didn't know it existed. So I want to, to help children all around the world. I fight for that what Braille will be taught in all schools one day, that will be an option as much as the sign language, that Braille one day will be an option that people that are sighted will be able to take and teach and learn to other children because there's a lack of Braille teachers in France and all around the world. So I'm on a mission at the moment to try and get Braille uh, registered in the World um, LUNESCO um, Heritage. That's fabulous, That's Maria. And when you think, I've read the statistics of how low, actually, the amount of um, people Braille is open to around the world when you take all the whole world, the third world but, and but, everything. But, but Patricia, at the moment, even normal people don't read. People that are sighted, like everybody's on the phone. Like, I think even the statistics for sighted people, when they leave at primary school, they can't read. So can you imagine how difficult it is for, for unsighted people, the little children that can't read? It's just not there for them. There's no Braille, there's no teachers, so they're really excluded from society. You're fighting a great fight for that to get um, it include, Braille included in the cultural heritage of humanity. Bravo, Maria. Thank you, Patricia. Now, Maria, you composed a beautiful song. Now, you composed it yourself I did, this time. Indeed. It's called Live for Love. And you hoped that that song would herald your return to the Irish stage and that it would be used for this year's Eurovision. But that didn't happen. Your comeback to Ireland is in another way that we'll talk about in a minute. But what was your inspiration for this beautiful song, Live for Love? For the world. And I wrote that song 20 years ago, believe it or not. And um, I think that it really represents what's going on now everywhere. You know, I thought, think that if we all could just love each other just a little bit more and see really that world that William Blake talks about, the world that we, can, that we cannot see. If we could just try and see it, open our eyes really and see and live for love, I think the world would be just such a better place. 
Maria, we're going to share that song now with our listeners, Live for Love, written by written and sung by Maria Doyle. When I think about my childhood and the dreams I had in my heart Every day so bright, so gay The sky was blue and I would play That was absolutely gorgeous. The style reminds me a bit of Edith Piaf, in fact. And the musicality encompasses your life, both in France and Ireland. And, you know, I could imagine that as a movie script to a film about your life. That'll come, I'm sure. (laughs) That's your vision. That's my vision. Now, Maria, completing a life circle, you went back to Ireland. And can you tell us about that, going back to Ireland and being awarded the Irish Presidential Distinguished Service Award? Well, now that you know my story, that I'm a Madeleine baby, to go back to Aris Anukturan with my mother at my side, to walk up those stairs with my mother Eileen, guiding me to meet the president, Michael D. Higgins, 
for me, was just unbelievable. Oh, Maria. Yeah, I know. It's, I'm sorry. You've done yourself yeah. proud and you've done us all proud. And I, and I didn't receive the medal for me. I, in fact, I received it for all those women that were discarded and forgotten, for all those babies who didn't see the light of day. I had the chance. I did see. But there's so many of those babies that didn't have that chance, and I received the medal for them. Congratulations, Maria. Thank From you, the Patricia. bottom of my heart, congratulations. And Maria, very quickly, maybe, would you like to tell us about your future projects? My future projects and my future visions, now that we're in that word, is I would, I've been working with Patrick McCabe, a very well-known Irish writer, and my future goal and object is to get the book, which is called Little Sand, published one day in English, in Ireland first, I hope, and then all over the world. And I've always seen myself as, this, as a little grain of sand. And the doctor, when he told me, when, you know, Maria, you're going you're, you're to be blind, but yet, you know, you're, this little grain of sand... This other little grain of sand is your daddy. This other little grain of sand is your mother. And the two of them made you, and it makes you very special. I want to show that a little grain of sand can turn into a mountain. Oh, Maria, that is lovely. And you're a real inspiration. And to sing us out, we're going to hear the version of You Raise Me Up, which actually sang here in the Irish Embassy before in 2021. Now, this beautiful song was also, funny enough, written by Brendan Graham, who wrote your Eurovision song. That this song will lift our listeners up until another episode of Turning Points. Over to you, Maria, to say goodbye and sing us out. Thank you so much, Patricia. And thank you to all the listeners. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pride in presenting the love radio. Paris. Paris. Paris, France. Hello and welcome to World Radio Paris Presents. I'm your host, Robert Quinn, and today I'm in the studio with William Orr Hogan. Soldier, diplomat, consultant, and writer of today's subject, Task Force Hogan. The World War II tank battalion that spearheaded the liberation of Europe. Firstly, Will, welcome to World Radio Paris. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm doing pretty good. It's soggy weather out there in Paris, but we'll make it work. <laughs> so, Will, you have quite a career biography. You've served in the U.S. military 
in armoured airborne and special operations units across the globe. You're a soldier diplomat. With the release of Task Force Hogan, is this the first time that you've added writer to your biography? Uh, professional writer, like actually getting paid for it, yes. Uh, because I've uh, working at embassies, I've written diplomatic cables, I've written papers, but not for general consumption. And uh, this is the first mm. time. I've, I've put out a couple of uh, magazine articles in World War II magazine, but just short 15, 20-page pieces. It's just a hobby. So Task Force Hogan, the book was aided in its writing by never-before-seen letters, military dispatches, journal entries, and interviews with surviving family of the task force. Now, this sounds like a very difficult first book. What was it like writing Task Force Hogan? And what made you want to take on the task of writing this book? Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of research. Um, but the the majority of it I did during the 2020 lockdown, right? So I'm, I'm sitting, I was working in the, at the bowels of the Pentagon, and I was managing kind of the overseas budgets for people like me uh, living at embassies. Right. And all of a sudden that dried up, right? The countries I was okay. working with, everybody stopped traveling. Yeah. Uh, so I was still, you know, I was checking into work. I was volunteering for whatever could be done, but I had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah. Uh, and I started uh, researching, and a lot of the records of my father's unit, the 3rd Armored Division, had been digitized. Yeah. So I was able to pull up the day-to-day, like, this is where we were, this is where we fought, this is who got hurt. Yeah. And that kind of served as, a, as an outline. Mm. And then uh, I, I engaged my, my family members. My mom was able to find this trunk that had all the correspondence between my dad and people that had written him. Oh, amazing. Asking questions, yeah. and as well as correspondence between my dad and his mom and my dad and his wife at the time. Right. And unfortunately, everybody's passed. So I, I kind of, in my youth, I was, I was busy with work. I was, uh, you know, I didn't know what to ask. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, better late than never. Yeah. Yeah. Better. So was this a task? Was this something you had wanted to write about and COVID kind of forced you to write it? Or how long had this project mm. kind of been in your head? Only only about four or five years because um, my, my father didn't talk a lot about it. Like that generation okay. didn't like to talk about the war. I think they didn't like to revisit the memories. And they were also pretty humble, right? They didn't, they didn't say, hey. Uh, you know, I did these amazing things. They, they just said, I was doing my job and I just wanted to get back home safe. Yeah. Uh, so the more I read about it during the pandemic, I, I knew a little bit about my dad having been at the Battle of the Bulge. But then when I saw these uh, day-to-day reports, I was like, this is incredible. They were yeah. in all the major battles, you know, from Normandy, mm. uh, the three major pockets where we trapped uh, entire German armies, uh, Falaise, Mons, and the Ruhr. Uh, and really just uh, incredible uh, time they went through and a, a lot of heroics on the part of his men. So I, I, I just thought I, I needed to tell the tale. Yeah. Right. So, Will, can you give me a bit of a brief overview or a blurb as such of what is the story of Task Force Hogan? It's, uh, it's basically a reinforced tank battalion, which is um, about 500 soldiers and 50 tanks and dozens of jeeps, half-tracks. It's uh, the smallest self, self-sustaining unit in d- that can do independent action. So it's big enough to have operational effects, but small enough that, that they're still on the ground fighting. Okay. Uh, and it was led by my father, who at the time was the youngest uh, lieutenant colonel in the Army, uh, 28 years old. Uh, normally, lieutenant colonels are 35, 40. Yeah. Uh, I'm in my mid-40s. <laughs> so uh, t- to have such responsibility at that young age... Um, yeah. is, is amazing. I mean, he was responsible for the mission, yeah. welfare, and lives of, of all, these, all these men. Did you say he was the youngest lieutenant colonel? 
in the I, Army. Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he was. I saw it in several newspaper cutouts again from yeah. the scrapbook of my grandmother, where where the, it was the local news. It said mm. okay. uh, Sam Hogan's been promoted, and he's yeah. the youngest lieutenant colonel in the Army. And are you telling me that this was something that your father was humble about? Or did did he was he proud of the fact that he was the youngest colonel? Never mentioned it. No, never, never mentioned. It. Yeah, and and when you're a kid, you're like a, a colonel. He must have been, yeah. you know, in his sixties. <laughs> you have no idea, right? Yeah. Right. So getting into the book, I want to read an excerpt from chapter one, right from the beginning. The odds sound pretty terrible. I'll just read an excerpt. Initial reports from the other U.S. battalion commanders were that even the Sherman medium tank was hopelessly underarmed and undergunned compared to the German, I'm going to try my best here, Panzerkampfwagen exactly. tanks, or Panzers. As a result, Sam's light tanks were only good for reconnaissance missions to guard command posts and to screen his battalion's flanks. This dismal fact effectively cut his offensive armour strength by a third before a shot was even fired. Does this give us an idea of how dire the situation was in July 1944. I'm not too sharp on my World War II history, but can you give me and our listeners an idea of what's the situation here, July 1944, in France? Absolutely. It was, it was things I found out during my research too, but uh, they were up against uh, very heavy German tanks. And, and, and if you look at Normandy, you have to land enough power to not just get your foot and your feet on the ground, but be able to build up enough power withstanding any attacks by the enemy to push out. Mm. Uh, the Germans were spread out somewhat thin, but they had mobile reserves. That Thankfully, uh, Hitler was a micromanager and, and was sleeping late, and Rommel was on leave. Uh, but when, uh, when, when my dad's tanks got ashore, uh, he had two companies of, of 15 Sherman tanks and one company of light tanks, uh, M3 stewards, basically uh, World War I technology. Okay. The Sherman was much better, but it was very lightly armored compared to the Germans. Um, but if you look at the Sherman, it, it was it was a tank that was designed to be shipped across the Atlantic. Okay, right. So you needed something reliable, not yeah. that heavy, yeah. and fast, which it was. But yeah. when they went up against the the Panthers and the Tigers, the heavy German tanks, uh, they weighed probably ten tons more, and the, the German tanks could take out a Sherman at a thousand yards, mm. whereas the Shermans had to get in close, and even then their rounds would would sometimes bounce off. Okay. So that would be a rude shock as a soldier to just be like, okay, my equipment is not up to par with the enemies. Okay. Yeah. So was this equipment, was this a kind of a last chance situation? It kind of sounds like they were ill-equipped. Was it a situation where they just had to use what they had in this situation? Like, what was the German presence at that time? Yeah, the, the Germans at that time had been fighting, uh, you know, five years almost and had... Uh, a lot of armored uh, experience fighting the Russians, who had okay. very capable tanks. Yeah. So in in uh, forty two forty three, they produced uh, the Tiger, the Tiger one, the Panther, and later the Tiger two. They yeah. just kept getting bigger and bigger. And yeah. of course, they didn't have to ship them across the Atlantic, so yeah. they could okay. just uh, rail them to the front. I see. Uh, and and again, the the uh, the U.S. went to war with a much much inferior tank in nineteen forty one, uh, the Lee and the Grant. It mm. didn't even have uh, a big cannon on a turret. It had a cannon that just sat kind of embedded on the in the hull of the tank. Yeah. And you could, you had to turn the whole tank to shoot. Right. Thankfully, by 1944, we'd gotten rid of those because they got destroyed in North Africa. Okay. And the Sherman was, was the next best, best thing. And, uh, and after that, they weren't able to get another heavy tank until almost the end of the war in the, in the uh, Pershing. 
Right. Okay. Mm. It's interesting learning about thanks, thanks. It's never something I really, I haven't really thought of. But actually reading an extra from chapter one, Sam could smell his own sweat mixed with fuel fumes, hot, smoggy air escaping up through the commander's hatch into the relatively cooler summer air. That's, it's, it's giving me an idea of how it would feel to be in a tank. And plain and simply, it sounds horrible. What is it like being in the likes of a Sherman tank? How many people are in there and how close quarters is it inside? Yeah, that was really my goal to convey what what uh, they experienced and what's it like. I, I've spent some time in, in bigger tanks uh, in the M1 Abrams, uh, but the Sherman was was a little smaller inside, probably the, the interior space of a, of, a, of a van, right, a passenger okay. van. And you have uh, five soldiers crammed in there. Uh, you're surrounded by ammunition, uh, fuel tanks uh, yeah. behind you, and it's it's hot hot as heck in the summer, cold yeah. and miserable in the winter. But it's also your your shelter, right? It protects you, uh, but also <laughs> vice versa is is you're also the biggest target, right? Because mm, if the enemy okay. sees you, they're going <clears> to <throat> yeah. fire at the tanks because they're the biggest threat. Yeah. And how long would one be in a tank during the course of the day? It would depend if they were on the march. They they could go, uh, you know, the full day just uh, stopping to refuel. Okay. Uh, maybe relieve yourself. Yeah. Uh, I think most battles probably went two or three hours because uh, it's high intensity warfare. So you're yeah. just pushing through. They they weren't fighting a lot of defensive battles. It was just keep hitting the Germans. If you keep hitting them, they they they're not going to be able to like uh, stand up to you, right? It's it's offensive maneuver. Like yeah. Patton said, "Odas, uh, odas, uh, toujours l'audace. Okay, what does that mean? Audacity. So the, the most aggressive, the guy that hits, hits harder, faster, is probably going to win. Okay, right. right. So it's kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> You're like, I have to protect yeah. my guys. Yeah. But also the only way to protect them and, and finish this war is to, to hit hard. Attacking. Okay, right. Yeah. right. So your father, as you mentioned, I wrote here in my notes, one of the youngest colonels. You're telling me maybe the youngest colonel in the army. In July 1944, is this his first time in combat during World War II? Or what had Sam's life looked like before this point? What, is tra- what had his training been like? And what was the life that was on the other side of the war for him? Yes. Uh, at that time, so uh, by the time they landed in Normandy uh, in July 44, uh, June, I'm sorry, 22 June 44, he had four years more than uh, more experience than his soldiers because he had entered West Point. It was the Great Depression, and my grandmother was like, "Hey, this is this is your chance to like improve improve our lot." So right. he graduated in 1938, which at the time uh, the U.S. Army was still horses, right? Okay. So he, his first uh, his first tour as a as a lieutenant, he spent on the U.S. Mexico border, riding, kind of protecting from bandits and. Okay. And on horses, on right. horseback. Wow. So, yeah. And he did that for about three years. And by then, uh, the U.S. Army started seeing the clouds of war okay. uh, on the horizon and said, hey, yeah. we, need, we need to switch the tanks. Um, but most of his soldiers, you know, they, had, they, they came in from civilian life uh, in 42, 43, and they did a lot of training. So they had two years of training before they landed in Normandy. So I want to move on to something. This is not very war-related, more about style. In the book... I wasn't really expecting it, but there's some really lovely writing. It's very human. I'm not that familiar with books on military history. I would have read a bit of Band of Brothers when I was young, but that's maybe only it. Uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt from the chapter Never Surrender. Now, this is about Christmas 1944. And maybe we'll return later to what happened that Christmas. But for now, I just want to focus on the style. 
It turned out to be a white Christmas, but not one that evoked fond memories. Many soldiers, including Sam, would never be able to hear the Bing Crosby song again without feelings of isolation, cold, hunger and impending doom. Sam walked the perimeter to check on his soldiers, but also to clear his mind. It was bitterly cold outside. At least the winds died down, thought Sam. Stars poked through the overcast sky here and there. Now that is, is pretty beautiful. And not maybe what I'd expected from a book on military history. And it's very human and gives these people real colour. Was that something that you wanted to do on purpose in this book? Absolutely. My goal was to make it readable so that one day my kids, when they're of age, they can, they can pick it up and, and see, hey, this is, this is what my granddad and his, and his soldiers went through. Yeah. And just, just read it and, and be able to, to feel some of what was felt and, and the smells, the sounds. Yeah. And, and thankfully, uh, since I got posted to France, I was able to visit a lot of the sites and, and that helped me right. kind of punch up the pros. Yeah, right. So one of, another great strength in the book, apart from your writing style, is your actual experience and career. So the book is wrote by someone with military experience. And now I wanted to ask you this. As a soldier, there are many moments in the book where Sam is facing extremely difficult odds. There's a part in the book which reads, Sam sat in his own little corner of the fog of war, mixed in with a dose of Murphy's Law, which I found funny. It very much sounds like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. As a soldier, are there any times where you question the decisions that were made by Task Force Hogan in the book? There's a lot of times in the military where, where uh, you're always questioning hires decisions, right? You, you yeah. don't have all, your, uh, all the information they do necessarily, but there's even a, a, a term that I, I remember hearing they would say, oh, these guys are echelons above reality. Right, yeah. so they're so they're so far up at some office that they they, they don't know what's going on. Yeah. So so that's a, I think a tradition as as old as armies is to is to kind of question that. Um, but but I remember in some of my 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 dad's correspondence where he would he would say, hey, these generals were like hectoring us to go up there, yeah. and and you know mostly staying back behind, and they and they weren't seeing what was going on. Uh, like when they had to round an enemy position, and my net, dad knew there was a swamp there. Okay. But they made him try to go there anyway, which just wasted a, a lot of time. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's one moment in the book that I want to talk to you about. There's a moment, and they're on the road, and they see who they think are U.S. soldiers ahead, but they are not who they think they are. Can you explain to me what happens in that moment? Yeah, it seems to be uh, – there, there was a, a side operation of the Battle of the Bulge was uh, the Germans had a unit of commandos uh, trained to parachute in, sneak in, okay. dressed as Americans to sabotage, confuse, possibly assassinate Eisenhower. Okay. And their effects were much less than the, the, the shock that it caused, right? Yeah. Uh, now, for this case, it might have just been uh, Germans that had looted uniforms, so we don't yeah. know if they were Operation Greif commandos or not. But my father had just gotten on three jeeps to try to locate the next unit. They're in the middle of the Battle of the Bulbs, they don't know where the enemy is. They don't know where the next friendly unit is. So what's a commander do? He gets in a car and he gets out there, right? Yeah. Uh, three jeep loads, and they turn a corner, and they run into these Americans, okay. quote-unquote, <laughs> who proceed to drop their food they were eating from this looted uh, yeah. U.S. half-track and start, yeah. like, shooting at them. So, uh, and my dad's, uh, the two lead, lead jeeps were unable to turn around in those narrow country lanes, okay. and they had to, like, beat feet into the woods 
and try to make their way back because uh, the Germans, you know, the bullets were chasing them into the woods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The bullets are chasing them as they as they run. And there's a there's a part I found very funny where you quote Sam as saying, "They were bad shots, weren't they?" Panted Sam. Let's keep moving. Throughout the book, crazy things like this seem to happen. There are so many instances where he very narrowly escapes death and seems to take it all in his stride. He's only 28, am I right, in thinking at this stage. How on earth has he got this kind of mentality and and calmness? He must have gotten it from uh, from his parents. My my grandmother was was a very strong woman. I think she was the first uh, female postmaster uh, in, in South Texas. And uh, just his upbringing, but he was a master of this kind of traditionally associated with the British okay. understatedness, right? Okay. And a little bit of irony. And he had, a, he had a wicked sense of humor, and, and I think to break the ice and, or to really inspire confidence in his men, he would just throw things out like that, and it was perfectly timed. Yeah. Well, there's a moment where he really had to inspire his men, it seems, and that was... Christmas 1944. It seems there was a point there where they were completely surrounded. Can you tell me what was the story there? Is it was a village in Belgium or town in Belgium, I believe? What was the right. situation there, Christmas 1944? Yeah, if you look at the Battle of the Bulge, it was the biggest battle ever fought by the U.S. Army. So, so you have a very wide front where the Germans attack with three field armies, uh, about 150,000 men, tanks. Uh, so my, my dad's sector was just a little piece of the northern shoulder. Everybody knows Bastogne, Bastogne, but he was closer to Hufalis, yeah. uh, which was his, his objective. Uh, but they were pulled back from Germany. They were the only units that were not committed. And they said, hey, you're coming back from Germany, and you're going to counterattack this, this German advance. And they had no idea what the strength of the, the Germans were, where they were. Uh, and they were just given the, the task of reaching Hufalis to kind of stabilize the line. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they they left with a third of their tanks, and their fuel was at half full. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was almost a, a not, I won't say a suicide mission, but they were speed bumps, right? Yeah, uh, in essence, yeah. yeah. And and the Germans were able to uh, when when the units finally met, uh, the Germans had infantry and were able to just surround my dad's tanks because yeah. you don't send tanks into the woods without. Yeah foot soldiers to protect them, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, the U.S. Army said, hey, this is what we have. We're sending them. Uh, and the Germans had infantry who were able to just infiltrate around the woods and cut off their, their escape. Yeah. yeah. Am I right in thinking there's a moment in the book where someone they're approached with a white flag, but they are asked to surrender? And your father, am I right in thinking you refuses to surrender not to fight their way out? Yeah, nor- normally uh, if, if someone is sent into a surrounded unit, they'll come in with a white flag so they don't get shot. I right? see. Because a, a, a defending <laughs> unit's going to be very trigger happy. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was the case. This German, uh, young German officer was sent in on, in a little German Jeep, a uh, Kubelwagen, yeah. under white flag to, to parley. Right? Yeah. And the parley was, hey, you're surrounded. Uh, you, you need to just give up. Yeah. yeah. But they did not give up. What, why? For, for me, with no military experience, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's it. Yeah. I surrendered there. <laughs> Why did they not surrender? Yeah, I, I think uh, so. Everybody knows in Bastonia where General McAuliffe's uh, his reply was nuts, right? My my dad's wasn't as succinct, but uh, my dad was a rational guy, so he calculated that they would need a regiment to push him off. Okay, he had he had enough ammunition. Uh, they didn't have fuel to maneuver, right? So they couldn't really escape, but they could call artillery. They were in a in a, a piece of high ground where they could observe the Germans around them and just call indirect yeah. artillery on them, shoot them with their few tanks that they had. 
So I think my dad calculated that that it wasn't worth the Germans stopping their advance to take on this little okay. you know, thorn in their shoe. Uh, okay. Uh, and and you know you have orders as uh, the U.S. code, yeah. uh, military code, is you will resist as long as you have the means to do so. Okay, right. So it was a very calculated move then. Um, but it did it did sound like they were completely against the odds. Are there any moments in the book for you that are really defying the odds of survival? That's a great question. I think uh, the first, uh, when they were coming off the Normandy beachhead, when they, they didn't know what was going on, it was their first combat, and the, the Germans had very well-placed anti-tank guns and horrible terrain for, for attacking tanks, which is the hedgerows of Normandy. Each field is divided by these huge walls of, of mud and vines. Uh, and, and he had not one but two tanks shot out from under him in the space of, of two weeks. Right. Mm. Uh, Several of his other commanders got killed during these battles uh, by artillery. And that's why initially these task forces were named Task Force 3, Task Force Z. After their commanders survived, they started naming them after after the commander's last name. Right. Okay. Task Force Hogan, Task Force Lovelace. Yeah. Um, But because a lot of the first commanders uh, died in those first battles. Right. And, and this is only the beginning. So can you imagine the thought is, are we going to be going through this for another year, six months? When, when are the Germans going to surrender? Yeah. And nobody had any idea. Yeah. So. That is amazing. So when the war is finished, how, how did you, do you think your father felt? I, I found uh, through, through some contacts uh, a picture April 1945 with him and two other commanders. It's in the book uh, towards the end. Uh, Task Force Richardson and Task Force Orr, and they just have wide smiles on their faces. I, yeah. I think they realized they had just survived um, the worst war that humanity has ever seen, and they survived, survived it unscathed. They yeah. got as many of their soldiers through as possible alive, mm. and they accomplished their mission. So I think they were, uh, I think they were elated and, and a little relieved. Mm. Right. So I want to ask you. You mentioned that you're father didn't talk too much about the war and there's one situation that sounded like it would be very difficult for him to talk about and that is the discovery of the concentration camp I think it's Nordhausen how much did that affect him coming across Nordhausen it affected him greatly because it um I think he, he was raised Presbyterian but he kind of became agnostic for a while and just I think it made him question uh, if there was a higher power that uh, that would allow something like that to happen, yeah, right. I think he worked through that eventually towards the end of his life. Um, but it's rare, right? Because because soldiers nor- normally they find religion in war, uh, and my father kind of kind of uh, turned his back on it for a while, really, yeah. uh, just because of the cruelty, the the amount of bodies. He never talked about it to me, but I think he mentioned it to my mom. Uh, just seeing bodies stacked up on bodies. Yeah. And I, I think his one concern was that one day people would start denying it. Oh, really? And that's why I wanted to make sure I put a picture of, of the camp in the book, right? Because yeah. as time passes, people start forgetting history. And I think that was one of my dad's one concern, that, that people would start denying the Holocaust, uh, these mass killings. I always think about U.S. soldiers in World War II and their connection to Europe. What was your father's connection to to Europe afterwards and, and to France. He, uh, he really loved uh, France and Belgium, and he had a soft spot for especially 
uh, in Belgium, some of the national cemeteries, and also here in France where locals have adopted the graves of, of these soldiers that, that, that rest there. Mm. And to this day, like young Belgians, young, young French people, they adopt the grave and uh, they're in touch over Facebook yeah. uh, and with, with grandkids, grandnephews. And when it's a soldier's birthday, they're there with, with flowers. When it's the anniversary of his passing, flowers. Yeah. So I, I think that's an amazing thing. And, and my father loved Europe. Uh, he, he spent most of his time in Germany. In fact, my older brother was born in Germany. Uh, after the war, yeah, and uh, he, he loved Europe. He kept getting invited in the in the eighties to attend uh, reunions. I think people would have been thrilled to meet him, mm. uh, but I don't think he wanted to relive the experiences or kind of be looked at as a hero. Right, he was yeah. like, hey, I did my job, and so instead he would blame us. Right, he would write back to these mayors <laughs> saying, "I have kids in school, I can't <laughs> afford it." <laughs> and I wanted to ask you too. I know I've touched on a little bit about your style of writing. But it was interesting reading through the book because sometimes when you're reading about soldiers, they sound kind of more like superheroes. And even this moment we talked about where they flee the jeep and they have to run when they see the Germans who are in disguise as U.S. soldiers. And he kind of talks about how much he misses, I think, his Christmas cake that he had in a jeep with him there. How? What was it like trying to capture those little emblems of people and how did you do it was it true interviews with family members that you'd find these little details of people or how did you go about yeah. it well, well that that was one of the few anecdotes that we would hear about from my dad right, right? uh because he he had a sweet tooth uh and being from texas he liked during the holidays he's like bourbon soaked fruitcakes you know, okay. kind of a tradition and my grandmother had sent him one which was in the jeep and so he attributed that the Germans were looting the Jeeps for food and cigarettes uh, that saved them from getting shot up or captured when they were running away from that ambush. Yeah. <laughs> so it was worth it that he left all his prized possessions there. Yeah, it was, it was that or get captured. But he, but he was a little angry. He was like, ah, I can't believe they got my food kit. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much. So if people want to read Task Force Hogan, where is the best place to go and get it? So it's available on, at all online retailers. Uh, in the U.S., it's at brick-and-mortar stores, as we call them. Uh, but Amazon carries it, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, if you want, uh, if anyone's interested in a signed copy, you can visit williamrhogan.com. I'll be happy to, happy to send you one at cost. Yeah, great. Will, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. This is not a poem. Poem. This poem. is not a poem. Ceci n'est pas un poème. Poème. Ceci n'est pas un poème. This is not a poem. This is not not. Ceci n'est pas un poème. This is not a poem. I don't know. Hello, I'm Elliot KB, host of This Is Not a Poem, a radio show on poetry and translation where we speak with living poets and translators about their craft. Today we are on World Radio Paris and we are speaking with Patrick Williamson. Hi Patrick. Hello. I'm really excited to speak with you about poetry today. Um, Patrick, you are a writer and a translator. Um, you're based here in France. You have many publications to your name. I'm pretty impressed. You've um, edited and translated anthologies of poets, poems. You've been published by L'Armatant, Corrupt Pressed, based in Luxembourg. That's right, yes. Um, among many others. You work uh, between and in which languages, can you remind us? I work um, from French into English and more recently from Italian into English. So I haven't really tried other languages because it's uh, 
a bit more complicated. So I just do those two. Sticking to the two Latin Sticking ones. Sticking to the two Latin ones, yeah, and it's, and it's fairly easy to to understand. Um, um, I go to Italy quite a lot, so I'm beginning to learn more about the Italian language. Well, we're going to be speaking about a book that actually came out and was published in English and in Italian. Right. It's a poem that you actually wrote yourself, and it was translated into Italian by Guido Cupani. The collection was called Traversi. It was published in 2018 by uh, Samuel Editore. Yeah. Can you read first the original English and then the translation into Italian? I will, certainly. The trace we leave behind. The word on the page is unscarred and writing the glue. Only replicants seal wounds cleanly so no trace remains. We always leave a trace, an identity in the cloud, portrait with grey, perfect to leave our ugliness behind. These quarrels of ourselves, this life we're bound upon, is messy. Predators or stars, we rise and fall, the right road lost and gone. And when the dark wood surrounds us, we leave scarred tissued behind. So make our life a poem on the page. Beautiful. Okay. And uh, Italian version. Italian's not perfect, but I will do my <laughs> best. La traccia che lasciamo, la parola sulla pagina è intonsa, e la scrittura è la colla. Solo i replicanti suturano gli squarci a perfezione, così non resta traccia. Noi una traccia le lasciamo sempre, un'identità sulle nuvole, ritratto con grey, ideali Polasciarsi la bruttezza alla spalle. Queste discussioni di nostri stessi, questa vita che ti tieni legati in un bel casino. Predatori ostelli, saliamo a discernemmom la dirita via smerita per sempre. E quando la selva oscuro ci circonda, Lasciamo dietro a noi strappa di terra. Su, fa poesia di questa nostra vita sulla pagina. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, before we dive into the translation, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the birth of this poem as you, the poet, wrote it, um, because it is just so strong in evoking the metaphorical aspects of language, of poetry, of translation, I think, too. If this is a question that is possibly answerable, how did this poem come to you? It came about because uh, for many years, every year, there is a translation magazine that I've been working with for about 20-odd years, and uh, it's called The Traductier. And every year, um, the team at The Traductier has a theme for the issue for this particular year. And this was a poem, I can't remember exactly the theme, maybe it was The Trace We Leave Behind. And um, so they ask you, can you write a poem about it? Uh, which is always a, an interesting challenge for me because it means that I have to come up with something and it makes me explore ideas and it makes me look into references. And I uh, wrote the poem with the view of for this particular theme and this publication. The writing of the poem itself um, 
entailed quite a lot of looking into references, working out ideas that could fit together. Like the uh, portrait of Dorian Gray? Like example. the portrait of Dorian Gray, for example, yes. And the original idea goes back even further because I did a presentation of the anthology of African poets back in 2012 and the group of um, translation presentations was called The Trace We Leave Behind. And this came back to my memory and I said, OK, this is an interesting idea. And so I looked up um, material and I looked up ideas about what is our heritage, what we leave behind and how we can, what we are doing in order to try to make it the best representation and to to leave something behind that is um, the best that you can present. So everything that you've done that is horrible, this idea of leave the ugliness behind is, is the idea of trying to sort of leave uh, the best picture of yourself possible mm. hence the idea of the dorian gray where you know there is there's the portrait upstairs and all his ugliness and he stays perpetually right. beautiful and leaves everything else hidden away mm. in in the back of um in the attic i think it is in dorian gray yeah, yeah and i think i think it poses some interesting questions on just the idea of translation itself right? because when one translates this poem made me think clearly that even if we, so for example, if you translate a word on a page or if you translate the image of someone into a portrait, there's always a trace of the person who has done that translation in that final piece. Um, and that really made me think of it. I think this poem really gets on that idea of how human it is also to leave a trace behind. Um, there's one line... Uh, you write, only replicants seal wounds cleanly. So it's almost, to translate is the most human thing we could do, or at least translation in the widest sense of, of, a, of a term. Yes, exactly. And this idea that the replicants came from um, a film, it might have been Blade Runner or another film like that, where they yeah. use this glue and everything then becomes perfect. And this idea, my what I'm trying to put forward is we can't do that. Mm. And all uh, of our lives doesn't um, can never be completely clean. And it's the same with translation. You can never get exactly the same uh, meaning across, but you create something slightly different. You move it into another sphere and... And you leave a trace. You leave a trace, yeah. This poem was published in Italian simultaneously as it was in English, but you said it also was translated into French. So you've read two translations of your own poem. Um, what was it like to read each of those to have your work translated and have traces left on it in these two different languages? It's very different. Um, obviously, I've been working in French for many years, and, and much of my work... Um, is translated into French or I work with French people. And at a certain point, I decided that it was not the same impact in French um, because of the the sounds, the more feminine sounds, because of the way in which French cannot be so concise. When you say feminine, do you mean like because it's la trace, which means it's the trace but in feminine form? Uh, not not necessarily that. It's a question of the ending. You, you talk about mm. la trace, huh? and in in Italian you have la tracchia, mm. where the sound is hard and it works much closer to the kind of language that we have in Anglo-Saxon, where you have stronger um, sounds. Mm. 
So at a certain point, I, I, I found myself saying the way in which I write doesn't fit the French language to the same extent because it's all this soft endings at the end of the of the mm. line and it becomes rather too long and it becomes rather too kind of soporific in a sense. And more and more um, I'm working with my translator Guido who I've translated as well because I like the, the sounds of the words in Italian, the kind of hardness and the, the choppiness of it which works better. Mm. Um, for me, so I, I found when I was working with my French translator that it was quite difficult to get my sounds or musicality through because she was very good, but she was all, you know, we have to do it in a certain way and, and it's, it's more complicated. It's almost like languages have innate characteristics to yes, it that, yeah. uh, that change the tone and leave a completely different trace when translating um, a certain a certain voice in English into that language. It does indeed. And, and I think it's very important to try to listen to all kinds of languages and then you can understand more um, how you can develop your own translation and develop your own language and try to see how you can reproduce that in, in other other words. Can I ask what the process was like to work with Guido, your Italian translator? Were you involved with the with his process at all? Did you give him free reign? I am very fortunate with Guido in that he not only understands English very well, um, he's a very intelligent um, writer, and he knows instinctively what I'm how I work and what I'm writing and what I'm saying. So with him, I just I, I sent it to him. Um, I said, can you translate this? And he came up with the text and he had very few questions about it. He picked up on the, the references to Dante and he found the original of Dante and he mm. put that in there. He just asked me a question about whether the Gray was a painter called David Gray or it was the Dorian Gray. And um, essentially, I I trust his work in, implicitly and I don't have many questions about what um, he does because mm. it he has this he picks up on on the way in which I write and uh, it's, it's very interesting in that respect. That's a really precious uh, thing to have um, that relationship between poet and translator when you. Yeah, it is, and and I've also I mean I've translated him and some of his work, and my Italian isn't great, but I, I create a version in English and then he takes it over. In one or two translations, he's just taken it over and said, oh, "I wish to move it this way or rearrange it or." or change the uh, the sound patterns or change the whole format of, of the work. And I say, well, fine, you know, if he, he, he has a very, very good grasp of the language. So it's a very fortunate uh, collaboration. That's wonderful. I'm going to ask a last question mm -hmm. um, because I think this idea of trusting the translator and uh, giving them, you know, a, a certain amount of freedom in, in to change certain things about the poem – Going back to this idea that maybe in French the sounds aren't exactly the most loyal uh, in French as they are to uh, your your voice in English. Mm. Wondering if you could imagine a French translator that would really change maybe even the f structure of the phrases or or certain things to make it sound a little bit more true to your... Could you imagine that or is it really the language that... Uh, Again, it, it depends very much on the translator. And um, I was fortunate again to work with a translator called Claude Held. 
and we collaborate and he has more of a kind of freer mm, interpretation interpretation of it and he's not afraid to move into different things and to to change the actual text itself to create something um very different you know and so it is possible i think it's very much depends on whether the person who is translating works in a kind of formal way word for word or they move closer to the idea of transcreation mm. transposition and taking the text and moving it into a different type of in this case french right and i'm very impressed with lots of translators and english translators who take a text and just completely redo it ted hughes or christopher logue or they take something and they just move it into another field altogether and if it's possible to have a french translator who does that then it's a, it's a bonus maybe one a day great bonus mate. exactly <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much well, thank for, you uh, thank you very much for having me on this yeah. program yeah Hello and welcome to Tell Me, Tell Moi, the new storytelling show on World Radio Paris. My name is Robert Quinn. On this show, we feature stories of all variety, some told in front of a live audience and some recorded in-house, in-studio. Today, you're going to hear one of the latter first, told by me. And then, after my story is finished, you'll hear a story from... Vivienne Vermez recorded at a storytelling event in Paris called Thirst. This was held at an interactive art space in Paris called Cinemorph, which is in the Tent Arrondissement in Paris. So stay tuned after my story for Vivienne's story, live from Cinemorph. Hello, I'm Robert Quinn. And this is my story about becoming a punk. First of all, to tell you a little bit about myself and my past. I've probably always been the least punk person in the world. I'm quite quiet, I'm reserved, and I had always been a pretty cautious kid. Never got in trouble or anything. I'd go out with my friends on Friday nights, and when the topic of climbing into the abandoned shopping centre in our town came up, I was the incredibly massive liability. When we did eventually go in, I'd have to be hoisted up over the wall by my friends because I was worried that I'd fall and break something or break my leg. Now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't a total square, but I did have this time in my life when I was about 19 that I became so sick of all the safe and predictable choices that I'd been making and that I was going to make. I could see my life ahead of me and it looked like one singular train track. I would always listen to the Strokes. I would always wear blue jeans and a white t-shirt and Adidas shoes. And I felt that this was some curse. It was my albatross to carry this predictability, essentially. I just found myself very obvious. And I decided I needed to get outside of my comfort zone. You know that feeling when you, when you step out of a film you really like? And you feel like a new person. That is what I wanted to achieve. And I knew that I wanted to do that through music. Music had better longevity than film. I could wear I could wear the merch of this 
new band I was into, make people playlists with tracks and deep cuts from certain albums. So what I did was I went to Tower Records in Dublin, Ireland, after college, and I had 30 euro in my wallet. And I decided to buy a record that I had never listened to, and this would do it. I narrowed down my new personality to three options. One was Roxy Music, Avalon. One was Sonic Youth, Daydream Nation. And the other was an obscure debut album by a punk band called Black Midi. The Black Midi record had a a big blue sticker on it for their Mercury Prize nomination. And that was enough, actually, to convince me to, to bring it home and put it on. And I wasn't into it. Kind of hated it. It was absolutely insane. Very, very harsh to listen to. Kind of deranged. But I did think the drummer was absolutely outstanding. But even at that, as a drummer myself, it actually made me a little bit depressed. In a way that I actually felt the drumming was completed. There was no point in me practicing anymore. It was done. That's how good the drumming was in this record. So it's safe to say it didn't happen. I didn't have this transformation. It got me absolutely nowhere. Or at least I thought until about two months later I was in a bar called The Workman's Club. An extremely busy night in Dublin. I was sitting by a lot of people who were kind of on the floor and I was up on a stool above them and I ended up elbowing this young man brutally in the head. I turned around and I said, I'm I'm so sorry. Um, And we got talking. He told me he was in a punk band and that they needed a drummer. And I said I was a drummer and I didn't know a thing about punk but I, I did kind of like the drummer in Black Midi. And he swung his head around and called his bandmate, Tim! Tim, this guy is a drummer and he likes Black Midi. And I knew at that instant, though it hadn't been said, that I had joined the band. So for my first practice, I was really nervous. I listened to these really hyper-aggressive punk songs. And I don't know, I guess I was getting ready to potentially get spat on. I had no idea what I was in for. And I got in there and I just started beating the crash cymbal like mad. I'm pounding on the snare as fast as I could in a kind of sort of self-defense. I didn't know how long I could keep up this illusion that I was into this really aggressive kind of music and could keep up with this aggressive lifestyle. But all I can say is that I got it all wrong. I remember looking at the singer and thinking he was wearing a very normal flannel shirt. And that shirt might come off sometimes in practice, but that wasn't an aggressive show-off kind of way. It was to be comfortable. And all of it was about comfort and respect and openness. These guys would then go on to be my best friends. And this image I had of the train track, it was kind of cleared and bulldozed for a park. I was still walking in a kind of straight line, but there was nothing wrong about it. I realized through punk that there was nothing wrong with me. And there was nothing wrong about being predictable or or cautious and actually I had to embrace those things and I had to embrace my own personality there was no album that was going to make me cool but actually in a sense being a nice respectable open person that was that was the cool thing
in for Mez. Um, you might recognize her voice as the voice on the Metro that tells you to mind the gap. Yes. So I'll start by saying, please mind the gap. No, the best message ever, because they, they give you the, the typewritten scripts, and they're awful sometimes, and I usually correct them. And one of them, the best one ever, is for a summer heat wave, which of course we've got now. I didn't correct it, it's too good. It says, ladies and gentlemen, if you are feeling hot, <laughs> please drink lots of water to keep yourself moist. <laughs> We don't have this tradition in England. If you bring in an object, they say, don't bring it in, hide it. We don't want to see your objects. There's no show and tell. So I'm not showing my object until suspense, halfway through the story. So this is a tale of the supernatural, a true story. So some of my dear friends, like Matt, a lot of lovely people, Carrie, Ursula, we used to go hiking, and a lot of strange things seemed to happen. We have this strange, I don't know, we called it witches' walks. <laughs> this is not one of them. <laughs> so, but I was walking with another friend who shall remain nameless, Ray. <laughs> and he's a very down-to-earth East London photographer who believes in nothing of the mystical or anything. And we're hiking in the forest of Fontainebleau, and it's a very cold day in February. And we hike, and we walk, and walk, and walking. And it was my idea, brilliant idea, to have a picnic in February <laughs> in the cold. <laughs> so we're sitting up on a ridge, and we have a, well, it was all right. We have our baguette, we have our cheese, we have our tomatoes, we have our pate, we have a bit of wine. And then Ray, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> <laughs> He goes, oh no, I forgot my fucking cognac. <laughs> he always has to have a cognac at the end of every meal. And I'd just done a workshop with the wonderful Shakti Gawain, creative visualisation. So I said, Ray, why don't we just sit here and visualise a cognac? So we sit there on the rocks and we close our eyes. And <laughs> and we visualise a cognac. I said, well, it's done, it's okay. We go down off the ridge, we walk into the forest, it's darker and it's colder, and what do we see? Amazing, I've never seen it in Fontainebleau. There is an uh, auberge in the middle of the forest. And I go, look, Ray, look. And he goes, wow, whoa, yeah, it works, yeah. And we go, <laughs> and we go in, and we have a coffee, and would you believe it must be the only auberge in the whole of France not licensed to sell alcohol after <laughs> a certain time in the afternoon. And he goes, well, that didn't fucking work, do you? <laughs> I said, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> we tried, we tried. And then it's getting really cold, and we've got a long way back to the station, and I say, we really should be going back. Yeah, yeah. But we decide to walk another half a mile. So we walk on, it's getting colder, it's getting darker. Then we come across a sign, a different part of the forest, and it says, Accès interdit, réserve biologique. So this area has been fenced off for God knows how long, and nature has been allowed to do its own thing. 
so nobody has been there. There's skull and crossbones and all this. So we jump over the fence. <laughs> and suddenly we're in this... It, the whole atmosphere changed. Ray, Ray felt it too. Everything suddenly became really light. We were tired, we were cold, and suddenly there was this extraordinary light energy everywhere. And then, <laughs> because I'd also been studying with the Druids at the same time, <laughs> I could see these two oak trees about four foot apart, and I, the Druids had said that that's the portal to another transcendent space. So I said, Ray, that's a transcendent space. <laughs> 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 I said, if we could just sit, each of us, under, each, uh, under an oak tree. So he sat under the right one. I'm sitting under the left one. So I'm sitting down at the base of the trunk. So is he. We have our eyes closed. And I've got, I'm just, uh, just really enjoying this light energy. And then I have a voice in my head saying, look down to your right foot. So I look down to my right foot. There's nothing there. And then it says, just this voice in my head, right? I'm bonkers, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then it says, just dig a little bit, and I do, and I feel just a little bit of glass. And then I pull up this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes, it's a true story, honestly. And on the back, it's got eau de vie. <laughs> yeah. And it had a little metal cap on it, and uh, the plastic cap on top. And so I nudge Ray. <laughs> I say, look, here's your cognac. And he goes, oh, fucking hell, you put that in your rucksack, didn't you? But he looked, and the plastic cap has got earth in it. So he, I, I, I immediately took a swig. I was cold. He said, it might be poison. And I said, no, I, I just, I know this is cognac. I know it is. Then I took it back home up to about here then, <laughs> and I told my hairdresser the story, and he said, oh, those were soldiers' rations from the Second World War. So that's the military bottle with the eau de vie on the back. He knew because his father had one. So I'm just wondering what soldier, under what circumstances, <laughs> sitting under that tree, maybe died, because that's where the Germans and the French were fighting at that time, and what is the story of the bottle? Did he miss it? Did he die? Did he live? And then I have a real question to anybody in the military. <laughs> is, was plastic around in the Second World War? And what, what time was it? That's what fascinates me about this bottle. But anyway, here's to synchronicity. Cheers! <laughs>
that could have also at some point been daddy's girl, but you didn't want that, right? No, no, no. It, yeah, it, when we were looking for an English title, the, 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 the distributor, the international distributor told us about daddy's girl. But for me, it has a different connotation and, has a, and it's different. In French, la fille de son père is kind of an expression, you know, it's, it's called, it means that the father and the child are close, but not like daddy's girl, you know. Right. <laughs> Um, Erwan, you majored in communications at Sciences Po. Uh, you worked for the French embassy in Yemen in charge of cultural programming. You've been a journalist. You ended up running the entire sports section for Le Monde before turning your attention to directing narrative features. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of careers. Uh, what made you leave journalism for film? The, 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 the desire to make films. Uh, I, I had this this desire since I was a since I was a teenager. I, I, I made films with my brother and my sister and some friends, very in a very amateur way. But after I made some different uh, different studies and led me to different jobs. But oh, ten years after starting working as a journalist, I still wanted to make films. So I, I I wrote some a short film for me which I did and then I did a second one and, and you know I, I did them during my uh, vacation time when I was working as a journalist and I didn't tell anyone about them about the films it was a secret and after a while uh, it came it, it grew bigger and I had the chance to do a first feature film and then it became my full time job yeah I left journalism. What did you make the films on just uh, when you were younger? Yeah. Was that I mean, film or Oh, digital? no, no, no. It was a, a, a video uh, in French. You call it video 8, video 8. I don't know how. Ah, oh, Super 8. Super 8. Like, you know, old, old cameras from the uh, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. Uh, or VHS. Really, no, not VHS. No. Really vid- video cameras. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, I... I uh, I convinced my parents to buy some to buy one for Christmas as a gift to all the children you know because it was a bit expensive so I said to my to my younger brother and sister we need this we really need this and we 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 got this and we started making small films uh, like this when I was 15 or 16 and you started to write this film during lockdown and this is also when you decided to devote your life to cinema so can you tell us a bit more about the process of writing during lockdown? Well, I it, it I had uh, I left Le Monde, I left journalism in for good in February 2020 and I said to myself it's good now I have time to be alone at home and work mm-hmm. and and just write a movie, a new movie after the first one. So I was really anxious to get started, and then um, some few weeks later, everyone came doing the same thing, staying at home. Uh, so I have a young daughter; she was uh, she was five at the time, and uh, and with my wife also. So we, like everyone, we spent a lot of time together. And uh, so the subject also maybe came from that, from that proximity and, and this family, this, this this family being clo- very close and stuck together, and with my my, my young child uh, and speaking to her a lot, and and I I started writing this story and yeah. And what's your writing technique? Could you walk us through it from the starting point to the finished product of the movie? 
uh, if I had the technique, I, I'm not sure I would give it to everyone. <laughs> you know? uh, it's it's a, it's a difficult thing because uh, you, uh, it's a question that I ask myself: What is the technique? How do we do it? I did not go to film school, so I always have this in mind. I, I think there's something lacking that I have something that I don't know about how to make, uh, how to write, how to direct, but. Since now I've been doing it for a, a few years, I, I, I've stopped uh, being bothered by this. But the fact is that the, there is, I think there is no technique. Uh, you can have a, a, some recipe, you can have uh, books that tell you how to, but when you are in front of the, of the blank page or in front of you, your computer, it's, the, it's just alone with this. And me, the... You know, when I started writing the second feature, I, I, I didn't know how to do it. And at some point I, I said, I, I don't know, I, I can't, I can't, I just don't know how. So I reread the first one I wrote and said, okay, you, you, so I wrote this, it's a bit like this. And also I, 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 I reading some, some interviews, I, I stumbled upon one from French director Jacques Audiard. And, and he said in this interview that every film he wrote, uh, it felt like he was starting from scratch, that he didn't know how to do it. So it reassured me a lot. <laughs> this man has written like 10 or 11 of the best film, French films of the past 20 years. So if, if he's in that state, it's okay if, if I'm too. And now uh, I am actually now in the process of writing another one. And again, I think uh, it's impossible. <laughs> I think <laughs> I don't know how to... Especially if you are writing from... I mean, from nothing. I, I don't go. F I don't write from a book. I don't. I, I, so you have to create a world. You have to. What, what do you? What do you want to say? How do you create it? How do you write? Uh, how do you tell it? And the way I write, I, I, I gather all the notes that I have. I take a lot of notes, uh, either on paper or on my telephone, all the time. Maybe an idea, maybe just an image, maybe just a line of dialogue, maybe a word I hear on the street. I write it, and some and, and at some point when I start writing, I I go through all these notes, and I some things stick out, you know. And you have this, maybe this character is interesting, maybe this one can go with it, and you start to to create this world. And also, I think when you start writing, you have to have a, for me at least. A, a certain idea, a bit theoretical, but a certain idea of what you want to exp ex express, uh, what you want to say with this film. And maybe at the end the film will say completely another thing, but it's important to have this f at the beginning because it will uh, it will uh, be like, uh, you know, uh, like a lighthouse, you know. I was uh -huh, looking yeah. for the word. It will be maybe like, like a lighthouse, you know. You, go, you, you know you need to go in, the in this direction. So you choose one uh, one idea like this, and after you construct and and you just write. And when you start writing for good, it's always very very bad at first. So it's it's just a matter of continue doing it. And you know the the the, the word by uh, Samuel Beckett, he say you just fail better. So you, fail it, better. Yeah, yeah. Fail better. You know. Yeah. So each day you have to fail better at writing, and <laughs> maybe at the end it will be okay. Um. So. Getting to the film itself, at the beginning of the film, um, there is 
uh, a collage of images, motion, sound, montage, um, snippets of dialogue here and there, almost like an absurdist uh, police chase through the streets. And it um, it's all to represent the exposition the beginning this the falling in love of the two character of two characters at the beginning of the film and um the film isn't exactly always linear uh but it is a story so what made you decide to start the film this way in this kind of um in this dreamy montage well i wanted to there was two things there was i think the first thing is then i wanted the cinematic gesture you know, strong one. I wanted to 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 start the film with a stronger, with just you know the power of cinema, the meaning in a few minutes with just images, sounds, little bit of dia- dialogue, but uh, almost not. Well, actually, there's just one or two lines of dialogue in in the first eight minutes of the film. Just tell tell a story. You know, tell a story with just images and the way people look at each other and the way one image. Uh, linked to another will produce a certain feeling or, or fabricate a story. So uh, it was this that I wanted, <laughs> this gesture. And with the music, it turns almost into something uh, operatic, you know. And the music was very, very important for this. There's a lot of music in the beginning. And when we were doing the editing, we we waited for the music, uh, which is composed by a French composer named Julie Rouet. And when we had this music, when she, she started sending the first one, we could we could work on the editing. Um, but I wanted this, and I also wanted in a few minutes to tell you know like uh, eighteen or nineteen years of, of the life of this character of, of Etienne and his daughter Rosa, and to 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 just also for the spectator to you know to to go through all these emotions with them. And when you stop, when you go to the present time, when you start to tell the story in a more linear way, uh, you you are filled. Also, the spectator is filled with the, with all these emotions and all these images, and he's in different place. I think, I hope, than than if you tell it in a more linear way. So, and it's also uh, I was talking about a cinematic gesture. It's also. A, a kind of contract you pass with the spectator you tell him from the start you tell him okay we are going to tell this story in a slightly different way than usual we are trying to at least and we we are proposing you a different kind of feeling it's a good uh, kind of appetizer for then the film mm. this film within a film yeah a bit like this yeah it's it's a it's a, it's a ouverture you would say you know ah uh, uh, yeah and there are a few other scenes in the movie which are quite dreamy and poetic. There is uh, the lullaby scene. There is uh, the scene where we have, I think, 15 people coming out of a car. Mm-hmm. And there's the dance scene, which is quite powerful. How did you imagine this dance scene and how did you decide to film it? Well, there, there is a dance thing, and it's a bit of a hallucination, you know. From, from, from this scene was in the script from the very start. From the, I don't know how many versions of the script there was, maybe twenty or twenty-five. But very early on, I wanted to do this scene. Uh, I wanted to film the dance. You know, it's it's just like the overture. We were talking about writing. The most important thing I know, I, I think, when you are writing and when you are directing, is the desire you have 
to, to, to film it, you know. And the meaning, it will come. <laughs> but the desire to, 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 to write it, to film it. And I had the desire to film this dance. I had an idea of what I wanted. I had some references. And, uh, and, and the meaning, it came after. So it was very early on. I wanted to do a dance scene, and I wanted to do it in a, in this way, a different way than I had seen before. And for the other per, the other scenes that you're talking about, you were talking about, uh, it's the film has something of a of a fairy tale. Sometimes you know, it has a, it, it can it can leap out of the reality and go back in, you know, in and out. And for me, it's important that uh, we never. Uh, we never stop telling the story we are telling, but we can tell it in another way, you know, with the dreamy, dreamy sequences, with hallucinations, with other surrealist sequence, you know. And it's part of the, of the way the, we, the, the film and the character think also. This, this, this freedom in the, in, in, the, in the film. I have a quick uh, follow-up. Um, did you cast the mother specifically for her uh, dancing skills for that scene yeah yeah yeah, actually yes (laughs) Uh, she is a dancer she's a dancer and a choreographer she's called Mercedes Dassi from Belgium and uh, I think it's only it's the first or second film she plays in but uh, she 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 makes uh, shows dancing shows that she, she choreographs herself so when I met, I was looking for a dancer for this part because of this scene, and also because it's a, it's a part that has a, a little word, but and it 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 needed someone who would have a very strong presence, you know, very strong. You you only see her in the beginning and in the end, and sometimes in the middle, but you need to never forget her. And and Mercedes, she's a dancer and she does solo dancing, and when she's alone on the stage, you know, she knows how to how to concentrate the attention of an audience and that's what I needed someone who could you know make a strong impression in a very few images and she could do that so in this film you know when you were saying how you were deciding on the English title and the translation and there was a specific connotation to daddy's girl Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting that you say you wanted to stay away from that because what I noticed a lot about the film was the openness and the maturity of the conversation between the father and the daughter. And so there's a lot of sexual openness, but it's not in the kind that the daughter is so sexually open. She's more explicit with her language, with her father. Like they have almost a peer-like uh, discourse. Um, can you tell us, one, what inspired to make that kind of open relationship and also how did you navigate and thread the needle so to speak of that kind of delicate relationship where you didn't you clearly didn't want to make it um some kind of tension between them but you wanted a sexual openness how did you manage to navigate such a delicate directing challenge well, it's not so much about sexual openness, but openness as a whole. You know, it's not the sexuality is uh, is the part that maybe comes out because we are not. So it's it's a bit of a you know a delicate subject. But I I think that it's we are talking about two about a father and a daughter that grew up together, that spent all their time together, that live in a small world. They they. they 
you know, uh, the, 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 the mother is gone, so there is a drama at the beginning of their relation, but they never go in, in the drama themselves. They wanted to make a happy life for themselves, so they decide that it will be like this. And so they, they, they educate one another all along their life. And for me, the way they speak to each other is, yes, uh, there is a lot of openness, there is a lot of uh, trust between them, a lot of love. And also a lot of fear that the other will leave or will not go or will feel bad or will be sad. They they take care a lot of each other. So the 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 way they speak has to express all of this. And the sexuality is just one point in in a lot of subjects for me. But um, and for the at the start, I think uh, the first uh, inspiration came from just me looking at uh, a few few teenagers that I know in my children of friends I have that can be like this today and I said oh it's interesting the way they are and I remember for example when the, the, the daughter of a friend uh, she was 15 and she had friends sleep over and boys uh, as well as girls and there was no sexual activity <laughs> apparently but it was just you know uh, in a very open way and I, th that stuck a bit in my head and I, I uh, it, it was a starting point also for the relation between uh, Rosa and her boyfriend Youssef uh, but yeah it's a more global openness and this this thing of trust between them and this is what makes their relation is a good one and it was important for me to 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 have this to 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 describe this it's not a, they don't have so much conflict they understand each other and this is why they are so afraid to leave each other and the film tell tells this story about these two that love to be together but they have to separate at this point in the film uh, rosa paints a lot um why did you decide to make her a painter and where did you find paintings with this specific style and how did you approach the filming of the act of painting uh, it was important for me that, that uh, rosa uh, she she need to have a, pa a passion you know something that would She, she would dedicate her life to and, uh, and it had to be artistic and painting came very s naturally I, I did some painting myself when I was her age which I stopped after because I had no no patience with it and no uh, no education no, I, I didn't know how to so. but uh, it, it still interests me and 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 I wanted to film this young girl who, who, who was painting and who, who was doing it very seriously. And, and it, was, it was important that it was not just a, a decor, you know, just a, it's not a set. It's not just at the background. It, it's really part of her. It tells something about her. So I, I, like I, 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 I was looking for a dancer for the part of her mother, for this part. I, I also uh, started to look for... Um, a young girl, a young painter. So I, I, I went to the Beaux-Arts in Paris and I looked at all the, the girls in the first year that they would be at around the same age as the character and I looked at all their work and, and I found the work of uh, one who's called Violette Malinvaux. So I contacted her and uh, she was very surprised <laughs> and I said I was making a movie and I was looking for some for, for, for paintings 
and we ended up using her paintings and also all her work, her sketches, everything that you see in the film is from her. And also she made some paintings that we that we uh, asked her to do. You know, we paid her to do some some paintings. And also we we filmed uh, when we we have some close-ups of the hand of Rosa painting. That's the hand of Violette. That's not the hand of the actress uh, Celeste. Celeste also Brunkel who plays Rosa, the actress. She 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 spent some time with uh, with Violette at the Baudard, and you know she she became kind of a model for for the for the, the this part of the character. So that's how we we did it, and because I I knew I wanted to film really the the, the act of painting, so I needed a real painter. And after Violet sold a lot of paintings to all of the crew <laughs> <laughs> and producers also. Uh, your film has a fantastic score. Could you tell us a word about the music, how you worked on it? The music is composed by Julie Rouet. And we worked together on the, my previous feature film, uh, Perdri, which in English I think is called The Bear Necessity. Bear, B-A-R-E. It's my toddler's favorite song from yeah. the Jungle Book. I <laughs> know, <laughs> the very necessity. Yeah. And uh, so Julie and I, we worked together also on two TV shows I did. So it's the it was the third time I worked together. I had, when writing the script, I had the, the, the feeling that music would be very important and would be, and with that there would be a lot of music and it was going to be a lot of original score. Uh, an original, you know, not uh, existing music. So I told I told that to Julie. I told him you can go to work because <laughs> there will be a lot. And uh, so we started listening to some of the music that she did for for my previous feature that I did not uh, select for this one. But sometimes, you know, you have ideas that could be interesting. It's also it's also easier for me. I'm not a musician, so it's easier for me to 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 talk to her to give a direction from if we go from a from a piece of music than if we go from a partition or you know. So we listened to a few musics and we started to to find a direction that was interesting for the film. And the global idea was to have something that would be that would assume the the the, the emotions, you know, great feelings, uh, something very lyrical, very dramatic, and it, it it could assume all the all all these feelings, all the that the characters in the film would not uh, would not uh, have to to bear, you know, to to, to so the music would would uh, would tell that story in their place. And uh, in and most of the time also the, in the way we work sometimes you know she 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 composes before and she composes during the editing and we send her some little sequences for example we and we said maybe you can try something on this a few minutes you know a, a strong sequence five minutes six minutes she would and she would send it back with a with a piece and most of the time I would I would take that piece and put it somewhere else. And because it was interesting to have uh, non-matching uh, things, you know, that the music would tell something and the sequence would tell something else. And it could go together and create a kind of a dynamic that would be different. I think I read somewhere, maybe on your Wikipedia page, loosely translated with my Safari button, that you had said that Godard inspired you. Uh, what? Uh, Godard. Godard. <laughs> Godard. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Godard. Yeah. Okay. Godard, good. Yeah. That he uh, inspired you. Um, that he made a great impact on you, especially his colors. Yeah. Um, 
can you talk to me a little bit more about how how he impacted you or well yeah it's uh, you know it's a bit it's such a, a figure in cinema Jean-Luc Godard that it's always but difficult to talk about it and to say oh, I was in- inspired by Godard I, I hope all the filmmakers are because they should they should be but uh, the fact is that yes it's uh, I saw uh, Pierrot Le Fou one of Godard's films uh, when I was young and it made a great impact and it stayed with me for a long time and it's really the film that made me want to do this uh, even though I didn't understand anything about it um, but it was really the feeling that it that it conveyed and that it produced on me that stuck so yes I, for me it's more it's more that the energy and the faith that he has in cinema that is important and especially in the the films from his period in the in the 1960s but also the other ones even though they are a bit more obscure and different and he has he he tried so many things it's always interesting but sometimes it's a bit uh, harsher than others but the ones from the 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 1960s are such uh, they have such energy and such color and such faith and also such great melancholy in them there are many many feelings uh, in them and many and also many ideas there's so many ideas everywhere of mise-en-scène of montage of uh, how to how to express a feeling how to how to be contradictory also to express one thing and then the other you know and to there is a dialogue with the spectator I think in his films and he's very uh, and he has a lot also a lot of faith in the spectator and all of these kind of things I think they are uh, an inspiration yes so um, thank you for coming to talk with us today uh, as your film is being screened. What can we expect next for you? You said you're writing something um, new. Do you want to give us hints about what that might be, or are you going to keep it close to the chest, as we say in the U.S.? Uh, I, it's a bit early because I'm just starting to write, so... I can't tell you what it will be about, but what I know is that I want... I made two movies that talk about family, family life, people living together, having to separate and everything. So I want to change. (laughs) I want to do something else. And also I want to to go more into uh, maybe something a bit darker. I mean, I'm actually... The the thing I'm working on is close to a film noir, for example, and uh, with different kind of references. One could be, for example, the, the Long Goodbye by Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a, re- a reference that I have for the moment. So that's what I'm trying to, to write. So stay tuned for the <laughs> new noir. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Owen. This is Yolanda Robbins, your host, of the Paris Property Chronicle. In this episode of the Paris Property Chronicles, my guest is Karen Bauer, who left behind her American life in the early 1990s when she began working as a writer in Paris. As a journalist, Karen worked for Paris Match and for Dance Magazine, but has recently launched a cultural space in the Marais, where she lives with her partner in a former foundry. They are also in the process of transforming a 17th century ruin in a quaint riverside town in northern Burgundy. Let's take a stroll through Paris and Burgundy and hear how this Jersey girl is sharing her cross-cultural experiences 
with a Franco-American flair. Karen, thank you for joining us on the Parish Property Chronicles today. Good morning, Yolanda. Thank you for having me. Karen, your Parish story began over 30 years ago when you relocated from the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Mm, Sure. My journey started uh, as a young child, actually, studying French in seventh grade in New Jersey. And I kept studying all the way through college. And so when it hit Rutgers and I was able to do a junior year abroad, I jumped on the opportunity. The first month was in Paris, and I just fell in love with Paris, and the rest of the year was not. So the first opportunity I had to come back in 1992, I came back and spent a year babysitting and then went back to New York and was like, no, I have to have a real life. And 1994, I came back again to Paris, and I haven't left. And when did you finally settle in Paris? 94, April of 94. So this year will be 30 years. Oh, that's great. We can talk about what you plan to do to uh, celebrate that. Well, let's hope so. As as you well know, we've known each other for, I I guess, for about 12 years? Mm, 15, actually, when we met in uh, 2009. So it'll be almost 15 years. And it will be 20 years for me uh, this weekend, January 14th. And I will see you you at 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 the FET. Absolutely. When I first met you, you owned a property in the 19th district of Paris near the Parc de la Villette, which now includes the Philharmonic of Paris and the Cité de la Musique and the Cité des Sciences. Can you describe a little bit for our listeners that apartment and the neighborhood? Sure. That was an apartment that was built on the parking lot of the Paris Metro and Bus Service, and they transformed that lot into their first real estate program. They partnered up with EDF, which is the French electric company, and they built about 11 buildings. And we were the first people to move into that building and one of the few people that wasn't part of either EDF or the metro system. And when we moved in there, we were close to the Davilet Park that you mentioned. At the time, it did not have the Philharmonica. It was uh, when my children were born there, we would go to the park and run around and there were signs up saying, we're going to build a Philharmonica. And it took a Oh, probably at least 10 to 12 years before that actually came to to be. It was a very, very long, long project. And we were sandwiched in between the Villette Park and the butte Chaumont Park, which is on the other side, which is also a beautiful, beautiful, very hilly, pretty view of Paris. So what floor were you on? Did you have views? How many bedrooms did you have in, in your apartment on the 19th? We were on the sixth floor. We had unobstructed views uh, facing north and facing south. So my living room was bathed in sunlight, south-facing all day long. And it was a very special building. They did a whole lot of um, sort of, I don't know, nice finishings. There was tech uh, platform outside my front door, and all of the apartments went outside. So when you stepped out of your apartment, you were actually on 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 a boat type feeling, and you would run into your neighbors, and you would meet each other, and it was... It was very, very neighborly. It was easy to meet our neighbors that way. So when you exit your apartment, because I think I remember going there, you didn't go out into a hallway. You went outside. It was outside. Mm. Oh, that's really nice. So you got you got a lot of fresh air. You left that apartment and moved to the third, which is where you are now, in the uh, Azimetier district, um, near the Marais and near the Square de Temple, in a converted foundry, which... I think dates back to the 19th century. I think it's probably late 18th century even. I think it's a little bit older than that. I think the buildings in front of us are probably even 17th century. This part of Paris didn't really undergo the reconstruction that Haussmann did in most of Paris. 
there's this sort of ended at the Boulevard Sebastopol, which is kind of the artery of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And my end of the neighborhood, they sort of started part of the street and they didn't get any farther for whatever reason. There was a few, there's a few scattered buildings around me that are really truly beautiful, but there remains the Marais old 17th, 18th century buildings that were, that were here at the time. So across the street from you, you do have some buildings that are from the Houseman period, but your segment of your street itself was from the older period. Absolutely. Can you tell us the history of the of the space that you're in and what they used to make there? I know it was a foundry, but... It was a foundry. This is actually the jewelry district. It's a combination of the jewelry and the fabric district. And it was um, for many, many, many decades and probably centuries. It was a very Jewish neighborhood and often Jewish neighborhoods. Fabric district, jewelry district, same as in New York. And that was in this particular building, they made jewelry. And they, the, the foundry, they, they worked with another melting, smelting place outside of this neighborhood. But this particular spot, they actually created the jewelry and the offices or in the bedroom I'm sitting in right now. Mm-hmm. And downstairs, the main space, they did sandblasting. And my partner was, he met these people because he was making jewelry at the time and he used the foundry to be making his jewelry. And then when they moved out into the suburbs to have more space, he sort of took over the space and turned it into a half residential, half a commercial unit. So it's a it's a mixed use space at the moment. Can you describe a little bit as you enter uh, <laughs> down the, the ground floor and, and what how you transformed it? The mixed use space, to his dismay, began in 2014. He's been here since 20, 2006 about. But in 2014, when I moved in, I brought my two children with me. And so it was no longer just an artist studio and workshop that he had sort of as a, as an, a man alone transformed. It was now it turned into a, a place where I was here with my kids. And now that they're moving out and moving on, I have transformed the entire ground floor into one open living space and kitchen. And I've become hosting dinners and events in that space. And it features his artwork as well. Do you know how many square meters your apartment is? We're about 85 square meters. The downstairs main room is about 50 plus square meters, probably about 55. And you have how many bedrooms on the t- on the second floor? Two bedrooms upstairs. Okay. And a bathroom upstairs, bathroom downstairs. And the bathroom downstairs is some is very unique, I should say that. It's funny. I had a guest who came here the other day without any prompting on our part who went into the bathroom and came out with bright eyes and very, very excited. I said, oh my gosh, it reminds me of Sri Lanka. And it was amazing because that is why he built the bathroom looking like that is when he went to Sri Lanka many, many years ago, there was bathrooms outside in the in nature. And that's what you were expected to do in the hotels that he went to is use the bath outside and use the bath. And so our bathroom resembles being outside in nature. And it's all rock and it has a huge green wall and plants. And it's, uh, it's quite an experience. And a skylight. You also, I guess about two years ago, I'm not sure if it was before the pandemic or during the pandemic, you purchased a property outside of Paris in a village that's pretty close to Paris. Can you tell us a little bit about the town and about the property? Sure. The town is called Joigny. It's about 150 kilometers outside of Paris. It's about, what, 80 miles, something like that. So it's about a two-hour drive. It's the northern tip of the Burgundy wine-growing region. And Mm -hmm. there's wine hills right behind my apartment that are a five-minute walk on one end and five, it's a house actually, and a five-minute walk on the other end, there's the Yonne River, which turns into the Seine as it comes into Paris. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a quite a beautiful location in in between nature and very accessible to Paris. Now, how do you get if you don't drive? How do you get there from from from? There Paris? are seventeen trains a day. The majority of 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 them are one hour and fifteen minutes, and only two stops. So it's a very pleasant ride out of the Gare de Bercy, which is okay. a, a very provincial little train station in the heart of Paris. And for people who don't know the region, Joigny is close to what, what's a major village uh, in the region that's close to it. Let's say it's north of Auxerre, which some people might know, and south of Sens, but not very familiar with Sens. About an hour outside of Troyes, which mm-hmm. is uh, northern, you have to go through a forest, so it's not that far, but there's no highway. And mm-hmm. it's just outside, of, I would say an hour or so north of uh, Vesely as well. So tell us about the property that you're restoring in Joanne. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let's tell us about the property. Let's say the property was a 17th century uh, kind of ruin that was lived in by a woman on her own since the 70s. And she moved out five years before we purchased it. And she hadn't done any work to it in all those years. So there was a bathroom mm. outside in the courtyard. She had to go outside to use the bathroom. And to get upstairs, you had to go outside in the courtyard to go upstairs. It was... It was a it was it was quite an unusual piece of property and when we purchased it I said okay I'll get an, an a vacuum cleaner that was the first thing I bought thinking I'll clean it up first <laughs> and it's basically uh, my partner Christian Tournier, he decided that he would just get a sledgehammer and the first thing he did was start knocking down all the walls and so my vacuum cleaner I didn't use until a year and a half after we were redoing the place <laughs> but I did eventually use it and and where are you in the process of uh, the restoration? And what what do you I mean, uh, do you expect to have one bedroom, two bedrooms? Uh, I know you have properties on either side of you. It's a, it, there's houses that are we're sandwiched in between two very large properties, and ours is the smallest one on the street. You walk in, there's just one room, and then there was that tiny little courtyard with the bathroom out in the back. And we've kind of connected everything so it's one communal space more or less, but the courtyard still is out in the open. So we haven't quite determined how it's going to be an indoor-outdoor property, but that's what we're hoping for. The ground floor could be transformed into a passage sort of guest bedroom, but upstairs there's one bedroom, and then the attic we've transformed, that'll be another bedroom as well. And then where the bathroom is, is a sort of warehouse with very high ceilings, and there'll be another sleeping space there and and a terrace. Oh, that'll be that'll be very nice. And you all, since you're in the the middle of Burgundy and the wine country, it'll it'll be a nice gathering place for your family and your friends. We do hope so. They have to like stairs, but yes, we do hope so. <laughs> the the town itself, Joigny, also has a uh, you tell me a, a relatively well known uh, restaurant and hotel. It is. It's called the Cote Saint Jacques, which is actually the name of the vineyard. That we that we are part of is Côte Saint Jacques, and that's the name of the restaurant run by Jean-Michel Laurent, and it's a Rollet Chateau. And his sister is right across the river. His hotel and restaurant and spa overlooks the river, and across the river, his sister has an, a restaurant called the Rive Gauche, which also has a lower cost level but very well well respected cuisine. A very nice chef in there as well. Okay, so that moves us into hosting and entertaining, <laughs> and because you decided several years ago to pivot, you were for Perry Match when I first met you, but mm-hmm. now you're creating the sort of salon environment for people who are interested to experience dinner with a with someone who lives in in Paris. Can you describe a little bit about about that? 
Well, sure. It's dinner with a local. It's something that I had dreamt about for many years. When I first moved into this place, I hadn't been here six months and I was already had my very first Thanksgiving for 20 people. And then I had a very first ravioli party with all of my friends from a Tai Chi club that I belong to. And my Chinese Tai Chi teacher came and taught us all to make ravioli. So there was the beginnings of, of, of hosting in this place for the longest time. And when I left Paris Match, it was right after COVID that I looked online and there was a a website I found called Eat With, but didn't seem to be didn't seem to be up and running. And I kind of put in a little request, like, hmm, "What is this? I guess it looks like you can host people in your living room." And they called me up. They said, "Are you going to finish your application for this?" And so I did. <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, I'll finish. I'll do what you told me." And by January, I had my first two guests, who were two women from Croatia, and who two hours before they came said, "Oh, by the way, we don't eat meat." So it was my first challenge. Like, how do I? switch my my chicken recipe and all of my plans oh my gosh so they didn't let you know that before they came so they showed up and said oh we're vegetarians they kind of forgot she was like well I forgot to mention my my friend who I'm traveling with is a vegetarian so luckily I managed to score up to a few pieces of salmon and my son joined us for this particular dinner and I looked at my next door neighbor who was a close friend and who we had lived through COVID together me cooking for her all the time Basically, I said to her, I'm never doing this again. And she looked at me and she says, Karen, yes, you will. <laughs> and this week I did my 75th dinner and I've had over 400 people. Since. Over the past year, you've had over 400 people who have dined at your yeah. foundry. Oh, that's mm -mm. that's amazing. Are they typically foreigners or tell us a little bit about the profile? It's fascinating because it is a, it is a, I would say that my, my listing on Eat With attracts a certain kind of curiosity because the majority of the people that have selected my uh, my space to have dinner have come because they're curious to see the artwork and because they're curious to see this strange unique environment that we have here in Paris. I do host a lot of groups that don't know where they're going and so it's a big surprise for them because they've just sort of checked a box that says I want to eat with a local. Mm -hmm. And so Eat With organizes all those dinners according to who's available in their network of people doing these dinners with locals. And so they show up at my house without any idea where they're going. And they tend to be some of, they're, they're just extraordinary. They're groups that are, that are eager to discover and very happy to be in such an unusual spot. It is an unusual spot, but it's very centrally located, which is probably one of the reasons also that people pick the, the, the space. Um, when you plan your menus, I, I know you're between so many amazing markets. You're near the Rue de Bretagne, the Rue Montagay, the Marché d'Alivre, the Marché de, de Bastille. And you also are with a community garden. First, first talk a little bit about the community garden. I'm very devoted to the community garden. It's called an AMAP, and the AMAP is celebrating their 20th anniversary this year as a whole in France. And it began uh, when this couple of French uh, farmers were in the States, and they saw the CSA. And, they and were the CSA sort of, is what? The CSA is a, com a community... I'm not exactly sure what it stands for. I know my brother belonged to one in Vermont for the longest time. It probably still does. It's almost like a, a, a co-op, but that's that's occasional. I don't think they actually have walls. I think it's once a week they get a delivery of, of vegetables and from local markets, which is how it works here. Mm -hmm. The AMAP is, it began based on the CSA by these farmers that were tired of providing only supermarkets with and having no other different kind of access to their, to their goods and their, their financial structure, their business 
model was just really they were they were tired of it. So they gave this a try, and they now have fifteen thousand amaps locally situated all over France. There's even one in Joigny. Oh my goodness! You would, there's an amazing market in Joigny, but there's also an amap for those people who are looking for a different access to. And how do you do? Do they partition off the spaces? How do you do? You have your own plot, or how does it work? I actually have in Paris the Amap. There's a there's a farm just a north of Paris, about an hour and a half north of Paris. That once a week they come in, they do, they bring their goods to this location right around the corner from me here in Paris, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. bring them out in all these boxes, and they just unload, and you have to go and weigh out your potatoes and weigh out mm. your leeks, and every week you have. No idea what you're going to get. It depends on what's actually growing in their in their sun spaces or in the fields or in their I can't remember the word for a ser. <laughs> the greenhouses, sorry. And so it's always uh, local and always very fresh. And I try to build my 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 recipes and what I'm serving my guests around what I get from these local farmers. So, so I know what's extremely fresh and and healthy. So it's basically the equivalent of farm to table. It is absolutely farm to table. And I try to be as local as possible for at least my dinners with locals. I've started branching out a little bit and hosting people who are actually local and don't necessarily need that, that local flavor quite as much. I can sort of branch out and do different things. And so I try to use the same products, but sort of give it a little bit more of a twist, a little bit more exotic flavor. And describe for our listeners, the markets that are near you and some, I mean, you have so many, but uh, like the Marché d'Aligre, tell, tell us about I that. I do. Market. Well, just this past weekend, I was at the Marché d'Aligre with some of my dinner guests who had forgotten something in my apartment. So I met them at the Marché d'Aligre where their apartment was, and I showed them around the Marché d'Aligre and returned there their 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 forgotten bag and introduce them to what a French market looks like on a Sunday morning. And it was quite a extraordinary experience. There's an indoor market full of amazing butchers and Italian uh, food providers and cheese and fishmongers. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And there's also outside in the street, people yelling and selling oranges and kiwis and, and anything you could come up with under the sun. It's very, very vibrant market. And there's also a sort of flea market snuck in there. So you have a little bit of everything over there. Yeah, I've, I've experienced that on a Sunday morning. The flea market, the regular, the market on the outside, and the market on the inside when I'm kind of late because the market on the inside <laughs> stays open open later. But the Marché d'Aligre is also known for its kind of, you can find exotic spices and, and, and you know, I... I cook not as not as not as much as you do, or because you're you're entertaining. You cook very well. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then tell us about the 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 marché that's pretty close to you, which is on the Rue de Bretagne and the Marché des Enfants Rouges. The Marché des Enfants Rouges is the oldest uh, still working indoor outdoor market in Paris, and it was once a, a home for orphans, an orphanage. I, I think that's where the name comes from, the Marché des Enfants Rouges. Mm-hmm. And today it's transformed. It has a fishmonger that's very, very delicious, and it has a few vegetable, fruit and vegetable stands. But it has transformed into a, a very, very exciting space where you are eating at little stands and there's a lot of little restaurants and there's a sandwich maker and there's 
it's extremely fresh products. And I used to, I used to, it was a magnet for me when I first got here because it was one of the few places that had fresh pressed vegetable juices. Mm-hmm. And I used to go there specifically for the fresh vegetable juices. Bon Even when you lived in the 19th, you came down to I the I would Marche come de... here from the wow. 19th. Yeah. I would come to the Marché des Enfants Rouges before I ever knew that I was going to be living here. And I would come there and, and get my fresh vegetable juices. But it's a, it's a beautiful place, a beautiful space and open year round, even in this biting 30 degree weather. There's people there out eating outside at the stands. It's also an anchor for the, the market street of Rue de Bretagne. What they don't have is an itinerant market on the Rue de Bretagne, but you do have quite a host of vegetable, fruit and vegetable sales and high-end chocolate. And there's a La Durée that's moved over there now and a wonderful traiteur. There's, you know, there's wonderful food on that street indeed. I have, and the most amazing bakeries in this neighborhood. It's just, it's just a delight to go out and buy ingredients to prepare mm-hmm. at home. And that really is just next to you. If you're talking about an itinerant market, then you're you're really talking about the Bastille, which there sure. which is uh Thursdays and Sundays, I think. I believe so. Mm, it okay. was Sunday, Thursday and Sunday. And do you go to that market? I mean, since you're right next to Bretagne, do you go to that market very often or no? Not as often because I rely mostly on the AMAP that I use. And during the summer months, I would bring my vegetables and my chickens and my all of my fresh produce back from Brittany in the back of the car or on the train in a suitcase if I was running late or if I, for some reason, had to just race back. I did a lot of last minute just getting back from Brittany, just from Burgundy, just in time to prepare my dinners. Do you ever shop in Burgundy to prepare meals in Paris? Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. There was a time where I was thinking, I'm going to just advertise this as Burgundy cooking because every every week I would come back with fresh food from Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And there's two beautiful ladies at the market who sell their chickens and I bring back their chickens and I bring back these fresh fresh milk from the other women across. The, it's, just, it's just a delight. It's a beautiful indoor market in Juen. Do you feel like you would replicate the experience once your once your uh, country house is done in in Burgundy as well? I absolutely would love to do that. I would love to give provide tourists the opportunity for me to take them out to Burgundy and eat in a local's home, like I have been welcomed in this town of Joigny, where I eat in many locals' homes. I don't have a kitchen of my own yet, and they're been very delicious meals and generosity and. And friendship, and I would love to provide that 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 opportunity. I have had people who've come to my table and said we'd love to kind of get out of Paris and see other things. And for just an hour and fifteen minutes on the train, I think it would be a a great opportunity. Have you always had a an interest in entertaining and and cooking and and because it's a it's a form of artistry, cooking. Honestly, <laughs> um, is this something that you were always interested in? I say yeah, absolutely. I think that I um I, when I was young and just starting out in France I think discovering how attached the French were to their food and to their cooking was it was an eye opener for me to sort of control control the food I eat and and and, and know what it is I'm eating it was mm-hmm. it was a whole new approach to 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 eating I suppose but it was it was beyond just eating truly the colors and the flavors and I became a dance critic for many years, and I think that there are art forms that you don't need language for. That when you speak the language really poorly, you can speak it through food or you can speak it through dance. And those are outlets for me to express myself differently. And when I was at Paris Match for all those years, I was very often in charge of taking care of the food. Are there any restaurants in your neighborhood that you 
I know that that you, there are, Paris is full of amazing restaurants, but just that you are, that you appreciate or that you you go to often or that you like. Absolutely, I would say that right next door to me, there's a, a wonderful little restaurant called the Bascou that has a very as if you're eating at home feel to it. And the, and the, the chef is a, a French chef named Romain who is very highly trained and he's just a wonderful guy and his food is, is delicious. And he, if you like hunting season, he specializes in, in game during the hunting season. And there's also in the, in the Marais, a little bit deeper in the Marais, there's a Le Loire dans la Théière, which I have begun uh, suggesting to my guests as well. They have the most amazing pies. I think mm-hmm. they have about 20 pies to choose from with uh, overwhelming amounts of uh, meringue on their lemon meringue pie. And it's just astounding. It's a, and, and also it has the same vibe, that same feeling like you're eating, eating in somebody's house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, do you pair your, I mean, are there wine pairings with your, with your meals or I mean, how does it, how does it work? Occasionally. I, it, there is some, let's say I bring a lot of wine back from Burgundy, because since I'm bringing my, my, my goods back from Burgundy, I also bring wine back from the Saint-Jacques region. Mm-hmm. And I do try and pair them according to what I'm eating. And there are quite a variety of Burgundy wines. Since we're both Americans, I remember when I was a little girl, I would watch Julia Child on PBS. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and I would think, oh la la, you know that it it it's just a very it, it it made me think about French eating and French food. Is there something that inspired you when you were growing up? I mean, in in your household. In my household, my mother was a, a wonderful cook. She cooked breads, and she, she was definitely she she was an influence in my cooking. Very young, my great grandmother, who was a Russian immigrant, was always cooking and that community around her cooking ended when she was no longer around. So you know how much that cooking had something to do with how people came together. Mm-hmm. And then I think the cooking sort of grew. I did not watch Julia Child growing up and I've started watching her on YouTube. I did, however, see Julie and Julia. And I feel like this whole year has been an experience experiment and I'm living Julie and Julia for the past year with all of the mistakes and craziness that goes along with it and the accidents and the pulling things together that you never thought would come together. And for that, I'd like to thank, can I just shout out real quick to, mm-hmm. to my, my friend, Tony, who is a, a friend of yours as well, who is an amazing chef and who sort of put down all of the roots for me to be able to do this and showed me that you can make dinner for 25 in my tiny little kitchen. And he will probably be an episode or two before this episode airs. So it'll be a nice transition uh, since you since you know him and know each other. When I, 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 I must admit, when I was growing up, my grandmother lived with us. And so a lot of our cooking was Southern influenced because she came from the South. And when she would introduce me to things like, and I know this sounds strange, but liverwurst. Uh, I used to eat, we used to eat liverwurst. And so when Me I came too. to France and people were like, oh, you know, you have to have a taste for foie gras. And so, you know, I was 19. I was like, oh, I have foie gras. I was like, this is, this is fancy liverwurst. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'd have to say thank you, mom, for the liver and the liverwurst because eating pâté and foie gras is easy for me. It's not foreign and it's delicious. <laughs> mm. Just before we go back to your business, you know, because this is about property, since you've 
purchase, the current price per square meter is in the third, is around 12,000 euros, okay? And since you purchased it about 10 years ago, it's gone up 23%. And obviously over the past couple of years with the with the pandemic, um, that number has been, you know, slightly stabilized, but it seems to be a good investment for you. In the 19th, when you left, the the property values, the current property values are about 8,200 uh, per square meter. And over the past 10 years, it has increased around 18%. So there is a consistent rapidity of growth. In Joigny, which I didn't know very much about the Joigny market, the price per square meter is around 1100 And over the past two years, since you purchased, the property values have gone up about 8%, which is mm. very, you know, it's, it's not a city. It's outside. But... Uh, it seems like you're making very smart choices in your property. I think I've been very lucky. <laughs> My question is, do you do it? Is, is it, you've done it expressly or is it more tied to convenience? So you bought the, the property in the 19th because it had two bedrooms and that, mm. that fit your lifestyle. You moved to the third because so, and, and join you. Why join Why join you? It was a combination of all those things. Let's say in the 19th, it was a brand new uh, development. And so there was a lot of incentives to buy in that particular spot. And I was able to secure a 0% loan at the time for part of that uh, mortgage. Mm -hmm. And that made all the difference. So I could afford. And it was also one of the lowest uh, values in Paris at the time and remains. The 19th is still one of the less less expensive neighborhoods. And that one was particularly down. And this one in the third... It was not really in a living state at the time where I purchased it, so it was not at all at market value when I purchased it. It was low. It was still it was still a studio workshop more than a living space. So it has it has sort of climbed up to meet the the neighborhood price per square meter. Joanie, however, I live with uh, well, Christian is extremely talented and knows how to transform all these places and we went out there and we discovered all these ruins and all these things falling apart was, ah there might be something interesting and expensive and we did find a very inexpensive location that really needed a lot of work and had i not had a handyman around <laughs> with a vision and with the capacity to do it i wouldn't have been able to there's it requires a lot of de devotion to to work around the it's it's a historic city that has a lot of architectural rules that oblige you to, to, to build a certain way and respect certain traditional visual aspects of it. But what's going on inside is, is fairly free. You can basically do what you want inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same in Paris. I mean, you, you have to respect uh, things that affect the entire building. But on the inside, uh, you can basically do what whatever you want, unless you're, you know, talking about waistlines and things like that or load bearing walls. But, but it is a daunting prospect to purchase a property and have to completely to redo it and have the vision to do it. So when you're with a partner who can do that for you or help you make the decision because. Or uh, have someone like Yolanda who can help you. Walk through <laughs> you have to have somebody in your pocket to help you along the way. It can, it can be done. So tell us a little bit about how you plan to grow your business. Because currently you're you're linked with Eat With, um, and most of the people who reserve through this site or through that application are not French. I would like to reach out in through word of mouth and through my Instagram and through 
developing and growing this little business of mine. I would like to attract people who are locals or, or people from France who are traveling through Paris and just curious to have a an unusual place to have dinner. I would also like to reach out and have it be a space that people can invest for themselves. And I wouldn't have to necessarily be the cook, but I could bring in a cook or I could bring in prepared foods and it would just, the space would still be a, a space that could be used either for fashion week or for artists or for, mm -hmm. you know, a sort of a multidisciplinary location that can be a referral as a, a place to, to, to have a moment, to have a, to share some time. I did actually do one dinner this week with all people, 10 people from Paris and Belgium who were celebrating the, the new year and came and, and enjoyed my, my studio. Do you have any bookings uh, already for the Olympics? I'm just curious. No, I have some March, April, and they just started coming in. It's a little early yet for that, but hopefully. Yeah. Um, tell us how people can find you uh, if they're interested to to either book with you or learn more about um, the Foundry. They can find me on the Eat With website. Uh, I'm one of the few that are functioning in the Marais. There aren't too many of us that are hosting dinners in this particular neighborhood. So that's mm -hmm. fairly easy. It's a bohemian art studio here in the in the Marais. And I have an Instagram and working on putting up a website as well in the very few coming days, hopefully. And more importantly, how do you intend to celebrate your thir 30 years, right? 30 years in Paris. 30 years in April. I suppose a big party in my living room would be, <laughs> would be a good start, overflowing into the courtyard. Let's see. I think, I think a big party is in the works, no? Well, I For look sure. forward to eating with you <laughs> and the rest of your guests and celebrating your 30 years in Paris. It, it has truly been a pleasure to have you on the, on the show and um, wishing you all the best in 2024, more success, you're, you're, you growing your business. And um, it, I, I'm looking forward to, to seeing many, many more achievements with the, with the foundry. Pleasure shared, Yolanda. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful on both ends and Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Parish Property Chronicles, Karen. I'm Yolanda Robbins. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Parish Property Chronicles. Property tailored for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Write to Write Paris with me, your host, and I. I am back in the studio after kind of a long time. Glad to be here uh, in the middle of Paris. And today I have not really a surprise guest for me, but it's uh, something I didn't think I'd ever have the chance to do. <laughs> I am interviewing my mom today. It's more, it's less, it's less of an interview um, and more of a like discussion, a book discussion. So in the studio today with me is my mom, Maureen Serviacharau. Um, and Maureen, what can we say about Maureen? Um, this isn't your first time to Paris at all. You worked uh, for the United Nations for what, 15 years and the, the UNESCO headquarters was here in Paris. So this was kind of like your introduction to the City of Light. And then after that, you uh, worked for an NGO for a while and then you went into development finance and you're still in development finance and several other business ventures. And now you're here visiting me. Um, so happy to have you as always. Uh, 
both in the studio and <laughs> in Paris and at home. So welcome. You want to say hi to the listeners? Yes. Hello. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you. So today we're going to do something a little different than what we usually do on the show. We're going to talk about a book that we both read in Paris. Um, but first, before we talk about the book, I wanted to ask you, was there uh, something different about reading in Paris as opposed to like reading in the U.S. or reading in, in Namibia or reading in South Africa or reading in Zambia? Like what's the difference if there is any at all? There is no difference. It's just the the environment. Yeah, it, it was quiet here because I was home alone uh, when I was reading it. So that was different. I was curled up in a chair, blanket over my head, and yeah, just went for a few hours and read it and finished. It was incredible. Cool. And so the book that we are talking about today is My Sister, the Serial Killer by Yinken Braithwaite. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing her surname correctly. Um, and why don't you just give us a brief synopsis before we talk about what our thoughts were? Um, yeah, I thought it, it's, that's kind of weird because um, she, she, the, the sister calls and says, uh, he's dead. And I'm thinking, okay, he's dead. Uh, then the sister says, I panic and I rush over there. And, and uh, you know, and then as she's thinking all these things, uh, she's thinking, oh, this is the third one. And I'm thinking, where, where are the first and second? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was fascinating to me that the sister rushes and helps clean up and move the body. And, and in all of that, there's nothing about the police. Okay, so spoiler alert, it is a book. I mean, if the if the cover or the title of the book didn't give it away, it is called My Sister, the Serial Killer. Mm. Um, and it opens with this very catchy hook about, oh, he's dead, like my mom just said. It is about uh, two sisters. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a story where one sister is her sister's keeper. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other kind of complex issues that come into play um, prior to them having this weird kind of relationship now where one does the killing and the other one does the cleaning up, um, which is also very interesting to to explore. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, it opens with Corriday, who gets the call from her younger sister, Ayola. And Corriday is a nurse at a hospital. And Ayola is kind of like, I mean, what, what would you say Ayola is? Ayola is, um, I think she's a, a spoiled. She she just takes no responsibility for anything she does. It's like she floats around and expects everybody to, I don't know. Does she to, expect that or is that what happens? Like, is it something she expects or is it what actually happens that people just kind of... It's actually what happens because she's apparently stunning, and she's sweet, and uh, walks around like expects everybody, because of her beauty, she expects everybody to just do her bidding. And they kind of do, right? The the pretty privilege. The pretty privilege is something. Yeah. 
And the sister just, uh, I mean, the description the sister gets is, is a bit weird. Like she's not pretty. Um, you you kind of get the feeling she's unseen. She, she does everything. She's the working one. She is useful to humanity, I would say. But And then she loves, but she doesn't get love back. However, you get the feeling Ayola loves her. Oh, that, that's an interesting insight. That wasn't the feeling. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get the feeling Ayola loves anyone. And I don't think it's because she doesn't love anyone. I think she doesn't... I, I don't think she possesses the cognitive capabilities required to love. Yeah, but I think her feelings for her sister come close to what would be loving her sister because in all her madness and her nonsense, the only person that she seems to have any feeling or would like to protect is her sister, Korede, which I found interesting because she doesn't seem to care about anything. I mean, man sends her flowers and she'll send a text. Actually, I prefer roses. (laughs) You know, a man comes in and he's fallen for her. She says to her sister, you know, he's not deep, right? He's He's just like everybody else. I thought, though, that that was a really... I didn't think that that wasn't lack of caring. I thought that showed us that she has actually a lot of insight into like the workings of human beings. Like she's smart enough to realize that these people don't, they don't care for her. They don't love her. They only think they love the, her external packaging. Yes. Um, And so I think in her mind that gives her the right to not care about them because she knows they don't, really they, care about her either. They care only about the exterior. Yeah. yeah. So. And, and you know, the way she said it to the sister with Tade, the, the doctor, mm-hmm. you know, how he fell for her. He just sees her one time and he's all over the place. And and then the sister says, oh, you know, um, he's fallen for you. And she says, oh, but he's not deep, you know. He's just, he's like every, every one of them. It's, she has this... Um, insight in, in men. They only see, how, they care only about the outside, her external looks, her stunningness and everything, but she also knows they don't really care about her, and therefore they're disposable. Disposable, as far as she's concerned. If they cross the line where she draws it, <laughs> she can stick a knife in them. She couldn't care less. This is very true, but, you know, I think it might be interesting also to see like how they start like how this dynamic with Carde and Ayola began um in their childhood with their father who was quite abusive in many different ways mm. um and they you know th- that is their first i don't know if we can call an abusive person a victim but that that is the first person that uh they end up killing mm. He created them, I think, because Korede is a creation of the father's abusiveness. And Ayola is actually the the one who um, crosses the line. 
And their father was so concerned about the public, but not about anything else. Mm. He he would lie, and they saw what he he did. And um, he was willing to sell Ayola to an old man for a contract. And so when he had, I think he had a heart attack, and they just stood there and watched him die. I think that was the beginning of it all. It was like nothing makes sense, I suppose. Hmm. If he was willing to do that, uh, yeah. And it's interesting, though, that this their dynamic revolves around murder, and yet Corrida <laughs> is a nurse and works in a hospital. In a hospital, yeah. And she's in the business of, quote-unquote, saving lives, hmm. while her sister hmm. takes lives, and she's there to clean up the... yeah. And then how um, she turned against Tade. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about Tade. So Corday works in the hospital, and she's madly in love with uh, doctor. this doctor whose name is Tade. Tade Otumu. Otumu, yeah. And he's she's been in love with him for ages. And I, you know, it's clear it's unrequited. He just mm. kind of sees her as a work colleague until the one day when Ayola comes to visit Corday at work, and he sees her, and then he falls in love with her. Suppose, falls in love, in inverted commas. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that's the introduction of Tade, and that's kind of his his role in that. And then it's a very difficult place for Corday because mm. she knows what happens to everyone that dates Ayola, mm, and he tries. She tries so hard to let him know that you know Ayola is not for you. You should stay. And but then you find out that Ayola has already informed him that Corede is jealous of me and um, she makes me unhappy because she thinks I killed someone, you know. So she, Ayola is... is Manipulative. Okay. I mean, manip- we know this. But. Yeah, she's already prepared him. So anything Corede says, Tade will not believe. Yeah. But then also later on, Corede does the same. She's trying to save him from Ayola and telling she's dangerous. She's killed before. Mm. And that's how it ends up when on the day when Ayola was going to kill Tade, Tade <laughs> already was prepared for it and ends up stabbing Ayola. Yeah, that was that was such a surprising twist in the tale. I was like, girl, he got you. Like You're <laughs> on the floor with your own knife in your chest, yeah. literally. Um, which was a nice twist, kind of. To the story, to yeah. To the story. Yeah. But then I, I, what? I didn't expect the way Taddy ended up losing his, his uh, license, medical license and ended up I think he ended up in, in jail yeah because Corede then took sides she, she chose her sister which was I thought even when it's family when they're doing wrong shouldn't we be doing the right thing I mean she always from the beginning has always chosen her sister mm. they you know let the dad die to save the sister mm. the constant cleaning up of <laughs> the yeah. Messes, yeah. So I didn't I didn't expect anything other than that. What I what I didn't expect was for Yola to to then turn on Tade and tell the the police uh, that it was, you know, him and get him into the trouble that, the kind of trouble that Oh that I expected actually. I expected Ayola to to do whatever it took 
to save herself. And throwing him under the bus was part of the plan. <laughs> what I didn't expect was for Kuredi to go along. I mean, she, she turns around to the police and says, like I said, I don't know him. Yeah, I guess. I guess maybe she, she'd been scorned since he fell for her sister and was prepared to, like, yeah, let him yeah. burn. To yeah. be fair, he did stab his, her sister. She did make a good point in saying that she, when he stabbed the sister, she, was, she, she wasn't a real threat to him at that point. Yeah, probably. But let's talk about the other big twist in the tale. So all throughout the story, uh, as Coraday is working in the hospital, she's also trying to become head nurse. Um, and she, you know, looks after a patient who's been there for a while, and he's in a coma. In a coma. And he happens to be the only person that she confides in about about this crazy story, story. that is her and Ayola's life. Mm. And then one day... He wakes up. One day he wakes up, and it turns out that he has been listening to everything <laughs> she's been telling him. <laughs> yeah. And so there's real kind of anxiety. Is he going to rat them out? Like, what's going to happen? Mm. Yeah. I, I, I had the feeling right from the beginning that she talks to him that this is the only person who probably love her. Really? I thought it was more kind of like, you know, two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. And being in a coma is kind of close-ish to being dead. Yeah, except she thought he, she didn't believe he heard. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually thought, okay, if he ever woke up, I bet this is the one who will love her. And it, it felt like he had feelings for her because he ended up, he ended his marriage and, and everything. But then the book ends very abruptly and... There's and nothing. it does, yeah, it does kind of. I also kind of got that feeling too that they were very close, even when he woke up. They were still mm. uh, close, like yeah. having reciprocal <laughs> discussions mm. now that he could. Um, and I hoped for more, but like you say, the ending is real abrupt. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of left wondering will they ever get together? Will they ever get together or will they just stay? platonic friends who have this secret mm. but I kind of feel like the willingness to keep the secret for her is indicative of like you say the potential of something of more something, yeah because I, I felt like his family abandoned him and she was the only one who paid attention to him I mean, his family only cared about his money. His money. Right? His, yeah. his wife, his, his kids, children. they did not. Nobody. They only wanted his money. Yeah. And uh, if he died, they wouldn't have... They'd been... I feel like they'd be relieved even. They'd yeah. be like, yeah. Yeah. Which is... Yeah. So in a way, they kind of... Uh, that could also be part of what connects them because I feel like Coraday lives at home with Ayala and her mom, but I feel like she's very... She's um, lonely. Lonely and isolated, mm-hmm. which obviously Mokta who is the man who is in the coma, was, was also as well. From, yeah. 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 Their mom was like, she lives in a cocoon. She just knows nothing. I, but I, 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 yeah, but I feel like that's also maybe a, a partially deliberate on her part. Like she doesn't want to know too much. Mm. And there, there is also mention of, the, of her being like, you know, during the time when their father was alive and just terrorizing everybody in the home, she ended up being kind of addicted to substances. Well, I guess of a coping tr- mechanism. Yes. Yeah. So because he was uh, he was a monster, truly, to her. And then she leaves for Ayola. 
yeah, she she worships the ground she walks on, and just kind of like Korede is hey, Korede is supposed to be part of the the ground that Ayola walks on. Yeah, and I can imagine hmm, she's a strong person. Ayola mentally, uh, Ayola no Korede. Korede, yeah, right. Sorry, Korede is, is a strong person. You know all this invisibilities that she deals with everywhere. The day when she tried to put on makeup, everybody notices. It's like, good Lord, you got makeup on. And Why would you do this? Girl, take it off. No, nobody's yeah. going to, like, this is not what's going to get anybody to pay attention to you. Like, people were saying that, and I was like, okay, that's that was weird. Mean. <laughs> and she went and took it off and, and wept. and uh, Yeah. But I feel like also this, this way of existing, this like invisibility she has kind of is the thing that enables her to to get away with murder. Well, she's not doing the murdering, but with but the cleaning up the and cleaning everything. Up because, because of people's inattentiveness to yeah. her. Yeah. So it's, it's unfortunate, but in a way it's kind of also... If ever Ayola was caught, she wouldn't be Implicated, yeah. Because nobody would have noticed her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, well, I don't know that we can say the same thing for Ayola because Ayola has like hyper visibility. Yeah. They, because everybody, if, because they always move the body together, the two of them, and everybody's attention is on Ayola because she's this. And the other person will not be noticed because it would. So it would be. It's her. I saw her, but I don't know the other one. Yep. Yeah, mm. I can't really remember. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So let's give the book a rating. Mm. How did you? How did you feel about it? Like overall, the good things, the bad things, the things that you wished for. Hmm. The good thing was that it was well written, well thought out. The characters are real, you know, the crazy nurses, the funny doctors, and all that. It, it's as you read it, you you see it, which is yeah, which was great. But I think it was a bit, um, I don't know, the the ugly sister and the pretty sister was a bit extreme for me. I. Pff, Sisters are sisters. Then not everybody can be stunning. But even the ugly duckling doesn't have to be that ugly that nobody... Yeah, I, I just felt a bit put off because I felt like Corinne had so much to give and she didn't have to be, oh, nobody noticed her and, you know, her face is... I don't know, this face didn't even get a proper, a proper description. description. Yeah. yeah. Except to say, oh, she looks like the mother, and the mother puts on the gele. Oh, okay. Yeah, but people who put on gele are usually stunning, so. And also, like, if she looks like the mother, then, like, then I don't know, is the mother pretty or is the mother not? Because the mother was married. She was married to her dad, yeah. Yeah, and, well, then, and then who does Hayola look like, her mom or her dad? Apparently she was so stunning, she was... (laughs) You know, one of those kids where you go, oh, the mom and dad, I wonder where they got her from. Yeah, yeah. it's ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then um, I think it was it was pretty well put together, just a bit 
I, I, I felt the, it was too extreme, the ugliness and the pretty, which I thought uh, the ugly duckling could have had a better description of what she was. And, yeah, that was the only thing I didn't quite like about it. But otherwise, I, I loved the book. And at the end, I kept thinking, I wonder if there's going to be a continuation so we could see if Martin and, and Correde got something going since he had uh, he divorced the greedy wife. And, uh, yeah. I would also be interested in knowing that, although I kind of feel like um, murder isn't a great foundation <laughs> to base a relationship on. But true, it would be interesting to know. Um, I felt like the pacing of the book was... Because it's a very short book. You can read it in a day. Yep. I know you read it on Kindle mm. format, and I listened to the audiobook. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it was very short, but just a lot, a lot packed into... But it didn't feel like everything that was in it was kind of shoehorned in there or forced. It, the pacing was... Great. It was great. The writing and the prose and stuff was really good. Um, what didn't I like? I, I didn't think that the, the contrast between the pretty sister and the ugly sister was too stark. I feel like it was a thorough kind of investigation of like beauty politics um, in Nigerian society because like, it's based, it, it happens in Lagos. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not from Lagos. I've never been there. I don't really know. So. Maybe, mm. um, and I thought, yeah, I, I think overall there were a lot of themes that were touched on, which I think were really important, but they were talked about in a way that seemed seamless, like you said, very believable. There was like a, a lot of character development, even for very minor characters. The awful nurses at the front desk who Corday works with, mm. they even feel like real people, even yeah. though they're just like such minor characters yeah. like they kind of only exist to ridicule her um, yeah. and show us like incompetence of civil workers mm. in certain places like public hospital, like public institutions I don't know mm. um, and the sibling relationship you know the it felt very real even if they were such different characters you know where um, you usually have Sisters and this one and this one, and although Corede w- was trying to, when they're at home, she doesn't want her sister in her place. But Ayola was always just, you know, coming in her, in her space and things like that. So they 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 were strangely close, but also not close. Yeah, the the strangely close, but also the sibling rivalry, I guess, which they can't help mm. based on how they are treated in society, mm. in the same society. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's a really strange, strange. Because if, if it were me, if uh, normally I think anyone in Cardi's position would feel resentment. Yeah, but she didn't Resentment have for always having to, like, clean up after you and, like, take part in criminal offenses that could get me thrown in mm. jail. Like, I, I think resentment would be the normal... Um, mm. sentiment to have towards the sibling, but I, I don't think we ever really get a, a feeling that that's what she Mm-mm. feels towards her sister throughout the book. Yeah. The only time you get a little bit of that is when she talks, she thinks about her mom. How can she 
be there and know nothing, you know. That's true. That's yeah. true. And also, yeah, and like we said, the, the mom constantly like just, oh, Ayola, Ayola, Ayola. And yet Ayola can't, can't, can't do anything. Anything. Yeah. 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 I mean, she can't even boil water, I don't think. Yeah, there is there is talk about that, like her mom trying to get her to learn how to do something in the kitchen, and as soon as the mom goes, Yola leaves the the cleaning lady or the cook to to take, take care, care of, it. of it. I mean, it is also interesting that like I thought it was interesting that they their father was very wealthy, and so even when after he died, they continue to like live this wealthy life. Because I, I remember the the one moment when like she gets stopped by the cops and they bribe her, and she has she always has these envelopes full of guaps of cash to bribe people, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of you know then made me wonder, like how come one has pursued like a career and the other is just like we say she's just kind of floating around. Yeah, except it's interesting. She's a designer, a clothes designer. Not that she bothers to. Um, sell her designs, but she would design an outfit and she would wear it and everybody is like in awe of what she looks like and what she was wearing. So she she is useful. She could be doing something more, more than just lying around because she can easily get a man. Oh yeah, she doesn't really have to, which is why she doesn't. I, th- I also thought it was very interesting, like they, they hint to like her psychological state, Ayola, is being like kind of completely detached from mm. what she does. Because you know the the one moment when the the sister of an ex that she's killed comes to her and is sobbing and is like, "Where? What have you done with my brother? Where is he?" And like Ayola's thoughts are just on like this ice cream that she was eating that now is going yeah, to melt melting. and she yeah. won't get to eat it because and she has to comfort this she has a hand over this one and, and she's, she's hugging her and the girl is crying and she's wondering how my ice cream is is melting, melting. I'm not going to get to eat it I won't enjoy it because of her yeah. yeah and the moment the lady walks off she's on Instagram she wants to do something <laughs> yeah 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 completely completely <laughs> detached. detached from mm. from yeah yeah so that's she's just an airhead, you know, person. But I think she blocks off everything in order to to keep going. Keep I guess. going, I guess. Yeah, because if she doesn't, I think she might um, fall apart. At least that's what I think. Again, I don't know that she has the cognitive capabilities to 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 fall <laughs> apart if she stops to process it. You know, and, and if you you. See, before she kills the men, they would have crossed. The, she seems to have a, a line where she doesn't want any man to cross. And when they do, she takes out a knife and sticks it into you. But the fact that she has this knife with her, like on her person, mm. always mm. kind of just ready is is also indicative that like she's probably not as dissociated from it all as I, I guess we're trying to reason that she is. I think she... she um, she sees men as being the enemy. Mm-hmm. So when she goes out with them, she's she thinks, I'm, I'm going to be ready. Nobody's going to do anything to me. She takes her knife along just for... Her her father's knife. Yeah, her father's knife. It was the father's knife, by the way, yeah. And the, the man who came from the woodworks, remember the, the gentleman who showed up and the sister was shocked? They went to Dubai or something. Oh, yes, and then he turned up. Dead. <laughs> Poisoned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
and they didn't. She, it doesn't tell you that she did, but that she killed him. That she was with him, and that he he expired. <laughs> expired during and their she, time together. Yeah, and then she called. But after doing her shopping, eh? yeah, you just remember. Yeah. Gets, that's true. That's gets true. Gets all her shopping done, and then he and dies. That's, and that's when he, yeah, yeah, oh. that's when he dies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so super interesting, super interesting book. Again, if anybody is interested, the title of the book is "My Sister, the Serial Killer" by Oyinkan Braithwaite. And as we mentioned, you can kind of you can read it in many different forms. Not none of none of us read it in paperback. Oh. Um, I haven't really read a paperback in a while. I do a lot of my reading um, through audiobooks these yeah. days. Uh, and you, as we know, I tried to get you to read it, to listen to it in audio, and you were like, absolutely not. So you did it, yeah. <laughs> you did it on, on oh, Kindle. I'm not uh, the audio type because yeah. the voices just get to me. I'd rather read it on Kindle or, yeah. Or in uh, paperback. Or in paperback, yeah. I'm one of... Yeah. I kind of feel like the advantage of of the audio um, is that, like, you can choose how long or short the book is going to be because you can adjust the, the reading speed of the person reading, which I love. But I also, you know, sometimes, like, you'll say a word and people will hear it and be like, oh, she learned that word from reading. She's never heard what that word is supposed <laughs> to sound like. And so I think that's one of the advantages of, of listening to the to the book, mm. um, to a book, um, but yeah, obviously, however you read your books is your prerogative, and all all the different ways of reading have their um, pros, so advantages. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's it from me this week with my mom. So glad that you could be on my radio show. Um, and, uh, what do you have to say in terms of like advice to all the readers out there? Um, I think, um, reading is something that we should keep going at, you know, and reading different, um, categories and, and different writers. Sometimes I read even what people call trash, just for the hell of it. I, I just, I find it amazing. True. You never know mm. until you read it for yourself. Right. All right, everybody. So that's our show. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep reading and keep listening. Bye. Please follow the signs for new arrivals. Hello, this is Yannick Champion-Ousselin for World Radio Paris's New Arrivals, our tips and tricks for those of you who have just made it to Paris. Today, I'm going to be talking about how to get around Paris. So first, we need to set some geographical boundaries. So of course, we have Paris Centre, so Paris Intramuros, as the French say, so within the walls. This is the smallest area of space. And then you have the suburbs, the banlieues, which are a bit further out. And then you have Ile-de-France as a whole. So that's the region that Paris is the center of. So how do we get to Paris? So generally, if you're taking the train, you'll be taking the SNCF, the SNCF, which are the national train services. They go across the country. And you may even be using this service to come into Paris from abroad. 
And then a bit further in, you have the RER, the R-E-R. So these are the trains that go from the city centre of Paris to the suburbs. And then a bit further in, you have, of course, the metros, the buses and the trams in the centre of Paris. So these can be split into zones. So if you're in zone four or five, you'll be around the airport. So if you're coming, flying in into Orly or Charles de Gaulle. Zones one and two, that is very much the intramuros within the walls of Paris. And then zone three is the close suburbs. And wherever you've entered Paris from, there will always be kiosks where you can buy tickets to access the train and the metro service. So these are T-plus tickets that you can buy. That's the easiest thing. Traditionally, they were the old paper tickets, but as they are being phased out, you'll see more and more plastic cards that you can sign up for. But in an emergency, if you're just doing one ticket and you don't want to think any further, just buy a single paper ticket for a single journey. These tickets can also be available on smartphones uh, or on a kind of simple plastic card called the Easy Card. And buying them in lots of 10 or 20 is generally cheaper. Though beware, annoyingly, some journeys will need two tickets. So that can be night buses uh, if you're leaving the city or because of badly planned transfers between lines. But generally, most transfers can be done on the same ticket. So any bus and most metro journeys shouldn't make you go through the barriers more than once. And then, of course, you can subscribe to different cards with a photo ID and you can get the Liberty Plus, so the Liberty Plus card, which is a pay-as-you-go service that is taken straight out of your bank account. Or you can subscribe to monthly or yearly passes, which are very much worth it if you are commuting. So if you are doing more than 10 journeys a week, they end up being financially very interesting. For all of these photo cards, you will need to bring in paperwork. So you go to a manned kiosk, you will need a physical copy of your bank ID, as well as an ID or a passport, and then a photo of yourself for the card. And now for a word of warning about ticket inspectors in Paris. They are not people to be taken lightly. They can be a little bit aggressive in their policing of tickets. And so definitely listen to what they say and always like validate your card when you're entering a bus or a train because you could end up with a fine, which, if you're lucky, will only be about €5, Euros, but may go up to 375 if you've really pushed your luck. If for fines, generally you will pay less. If you pay on the spot, they will ask you to pay the fine directly there, and you may end up paying more if you wait till later on to pay the fine. If you are using the paper tickets, remember to not throw them away for the duration of your journey, so if you do encounter a ticket inspector, you can prove that you've paid. Also, if you have bought a ticket in advance, a paper ticket, and it's not working, even though you know that you've not used it, often it can be that the magnetic band on the back has just faded away. And so you can go into any manned kiosk and just tell them, I think the electric band has faded. Can you please replace it for me? And they will do this for you for free. And also a bit of advice about how to navigate the city when it comes to apps. So of course, Google Maps and Apple Maps will work. But for live bus timetables, passenger incidences, and general kind of engineering works, the much more viable apps are, of course, the RATP, so the RATP app, which is the general app for Parisian transport. They also have a website, which you can use to plan your journey. And also my personal favorite, City Mapper, which is used in major cities all across the world and will give you live updates about any transport issues and allow you to plan your journey in peace. So that's all for today. I wish you good luck in navigating Paris's transport system. Take a deep breath and have a go at it. Good luck and I'll see you next time. <laughs>